All right. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Black Muse Podcast. It's your boy, Jason Muse, a.k.a. The Black Muse. We're here for another deep dive episode. Uh, very excited about today's episode because I haven't been able to film. Uh, I had a couple guests cancel on me or whatever, but I'm making more content right now. Got to get in where you fit in. Uh, and I have a uh, guest with me that I've known actually for a while, for a few years now. Uh, uh, another brother who uh, I'd like to get, you know, we like to have deep conversations about all kinds of things with. Um, I uh, first met him. Uh, he was actually an admin at a school that I first started working at uh, when I first moved to San Francisco, uh, a school by the name of KIPP, San Francisco College Preparatory. Um, so without further ado, uh, I want to introduce my special guest today, a man by the name of Malik Brown. Malik, hey, how you doing? I'm doing good. What's up, Muse? Nice to see you, though. Good to see you, man. So so how's life, man? How's, how's, how's everything going in your world? Man, uh, life is good. Um, I'm feeling good. I feel like I'm coming out of a season of uh, reflection, and now I'm moving into a season of healing. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's nice to see you. Um, and, you know, I got a couple of events going on this uh, this week. I'm back in the Bay. So, uh, yeah, it's nice yes, to start off the day with you on your podcast, bro. I appreciate it. So you 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 do a lot of moving. You do a lot of moves, uh, both f- figurative and 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 literal. Uh, what's it like always moving around, connecting, networking, doing what you uh, do? Yeah, you know, I'm just trying to stay aligned with my purpose, and I think that you know, movement in like my like you said, my actual location of where I've stayed. I, I now that I'm in Chicago, I've officially been to uh, every coast in this, in in the uh, United States. I've lived on the West Coast, in the South. Um, I live in the Midwest and I live in the East Coast. And um, but then also, you know, I love to travel. So I'm always traveling in general, period. Um, and I think that just aligns with what my interests are around culture and then also around just being a connection point for other people. Um, I think one of the reasons why, as you mentioned, we, we met in education is because one something that's always been on my spirit is being able to inspire people. And I think that um, coming out of the education system, that really hasn't changed. I just do that with adults or I just do that with the people I'm around. And so uh, connecting cities and connecting people is just kind of where I'm at man, right now in my life. So on a more personal note, and I want you to be honest because, you know, my podcast is, is mostly about honesty or honest engagement. Uh, I want you to give a little bit of a flavor about our relationship and how we started, I think, from the day we first met in person, uh, entering conversations and debating yeah. all kinds of yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think that there's a, I mean, I mean, to be perfectly transparent for myself, I think it has a lot to do with uh, just certain dispositions that me and you have. So as soon as we met, I think that it, it became a, 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 a situation where it's like we don't share the same opinions, but we both share the passion for discussing opinions at depth so that we can truly understand what the truth is. And I think that my evolution within the relationship with you has just been. I feel like inspiring and really when you look back at it, because I think that we used to argue a lot and we were very comfortable with arguing a lot so much so that people around us felt like, what the hell is going on? These people just met and now they're like having a side conversation the whole time. I think the the first time it happened was when we were in Vegas um, with with Kip and did the little retreat thing and people were off put by it, but I feel like I've always felt comfortable with it. But then to be honest with you, man, like, and I think a lot of people who, can understand sometimes from my disposition is that when you have your, for me, you come off as conservative, right? I think in your mind, it seems like you're just being like objective, but for me, it comes off as a little bit more conservative. And so it's like, from my point of view, it's like you have that one conservative friend that you fuck with because you know his spirit is cool and he means well, but nevertheless, you know, you get close, you get too close to shit or you continue to be around shit. It stops smelling at one, 
at one point. And I feel like sometimes it just, I always felt like as our relationship went on, as a brother, I would always feel like I had to have your back. I felt obligated, but at the same time, I always felt like I don't, I can only take you in doses because like there's all the things that, you know, motherfuckers are dealing with at the time. And it's like, you don't want to always hear the person that has a, a, a hot take on what Trump is really doing or a hot take on, on, on one of the times we had a conversation around at my house around, uh, the, the the little girl that got uh that got put in a little situation because she had a lemonade stand and you had something to say about defending the lady that that was putting her on blast for having a lemonade stand in, in San Francisco and like stuff like that is like I have to be in a space to be really be able to understand and if we're and, and if we're being open and honest and, and communicative it I don't I know that I don't only just I'm not the only one that feels like this because you've introduced friends into my into my life, such as John, in which we've had the same conversations about like, well, you know, you can only put up with moves to a certain extent. But I will say that one of the things that has been endearing about you is that you are not only stubborn, but you're like, um, I don't know, you're true and you're real. Up under all of that, you really are a genuine human being. I think that after, especially after you got past the COVID incident with yourself and the way that you've kind of been opened up to this like, understanding how stubborn you might have been or maybe like not necessarily uh, reasonable um, in trying to get to your truth and, and figure out the truth like everybody else. I think that I, I've, I've really been able to, to uh, appreciate how dependable you are as a human being and, and kind of be able to like, as you've been able to open up and see things, it's helped me be able to open up and see you in, in, in a more light too. So that's why I'm like super, like it, it only seems natural that you, you would be the type of person to have a podcast and be able to discuss a whole bunch of shit. And, and and also um, something that's been consistent, no matter how I felt about you, is that you've always pushed conversations and you've pushed ideas. And I love the way your mind works. And so that for me, it always stays intriguing because I love that aspect about being able to engage with you is that I know I won't be able to just stand on ideology or stand on particular dogmas coming from the left, right, center or whatever, because you're going to challenge it. So I definitely appreciate that. Cool. I mean, you said a whole lot, and and I think that a lot of that resonated with me. I I do know for a fact that you're not the only one that feels that way. There's been people who have expressed it to me uh, directly. There's been people who have expressed it behind my back, but they didn't know that I I was aware. Um, and I mean, I mean, if I'm gonna just be real, I think that um, uh, even I mean, from a very young age, uh, I've been the kind of person that is probably better in doses. Uh, I'm an acquired taste. Uh, this has been this is this has been true in my dating life. It's been true in my other relationships that I've had, um, with like friendships and things like that. And I think I got into the point with the near death experience, being in the hospital with COVID, where um, I was finally able to kind of recognize uh, the extent to which I created that in ways that were gratuitous or unnecessary. Created a, a feeling of I can only deal with Jason Muse for so long. Um, and the, the extent to which I would be stubborn or abrasive or a little too aggressive in challenging, uh, points of view, uh, that I, that I differed on. Um, and it's interesting that you label me conservative because you're not the only one that's done that. However, <laughs> when I do talk to conservatives, people that I consider conservatives, they want to label me left wing radical, things like that. And so I, I've always found that to be uh, hilarious because... I would consider myself more moderate. Um, I definitely have some overlap with conservatives. I agree with some conservatives on some things, uh, but I also have overlap with people who are more progressive too. And so kind of part of my exploration is trying to figure out exactly where the hell I am because I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, maybe I lean more right than left. Maybe I lean more left than right. Maybe I'm directly in the middle. I don't know, but I'm somewhere in there. 
because uh, I disagree with everybody. <laughs> um, and maybe yeah, I'm just a contrarian. Yeah, no, I, I understand the experience. And I think that I do the same thing in certain spaces, too, because first and foremost, I like to challenge thought. And sometimes I'll, I'll play devil's advocate subconsciously without even trying it. So, like, when I went to my HBCU, a lot of people there thought I was more conservative because I was challenging a lot of different things. Um, but then at the same time, when I'm in predominantly white spaces, uh, people think that I'm a lot more, um, at least that used to be the case. People used to think that I was a lot more um, liberal. But I think now, I think where I'm trying to figure out is that I just want to, I just want to, I don't want to have to defend something that doesn't make sense to defend. I just want to get to the truth and I want to get to the point of where human beings, I think certain things we can all agree on. Like That's why I don't even like to be a part of that political spectrum. I genuinely don't agree with a lot of what Republicans or conservatives think, and I don't, and I genuinely do not agree. And it's taken me a longer time. I will say that, do not agree with what their, uh, Democrats and liberals are, are doing. Because um, yeah, I don't believe in because I feel like white supremacy shows up on both sides in a very in different ways. And I also think that even outside of race, class is just the way that class shows up on both parties is even stronger. And I think also ultimately, as I move into my spirituality. I think that the ways in which people are operating uh, in, in the sense of like really taking care of their fellow human beings is also just at an all time um, low on both parties. So, yeah, like I'm not saying I'm apolitical or anything like that. I try to stay within within my realm with like understanding politics, understanding people's struggle and being supportive. But I'm not like I, I'm definitely way past that whole like just because I'm black, I got to support liberals or I or just because I'm black, I'm going to do this hot take where I'm a conservative. I'm going to explain to you the way in which, because conservatives do have, in principle, some really good um, points of view. Yeah, and not all not all conservatives are the same. Not all liberals are the same. So even within either side, there's um, there's room and there's wiggle room, and there's just there's room for disagreement. Um, so I, I think like what I actually enjoy the most in my political engagement is the complexity and part of the basis what motivates me to challenge people is a lot of times I feel like people aren't really acknowledging the complexity in these issues. And they, they talk about them as if they're, they're really simple when they're not. So take, so take an issue that's, uh, that's being talked about right now in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned of abortion. Um, that's something that I've always been ambivalent about because I've always recognized validity on both sides of that debate, but I've always engaged with people who are very, very sure that their side was right only and exclusively and the other side was wrong and, and, and not just wrong, but, but batshit crazy and or just immoral or vile. And I never really understood that way of politically engaging where you're so certain. Um, and a part of that stems from my, you know, formal education in philosophy and which was very, very strongly encouraging Western analytical philosophy, very strongly encourages critical thinking, exploring all sides of issues. And so I just, uh, you know, have moved in a way where I applied that to political things, not just political ideology, but just political uh, issues. Um, and I value that. It's one of the reasons why I got into debate in the first place. I ended up coaching debate at the school that we both taught at um, or worked at. Um, That's also amazing. So, yeah. So 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 there's a so there's a lot of similarities I think in terms of what you were describing, kind of motivates you and what motivates me. I think there's some differences too, but I think the similarities is what is what probably has sustained our relationship to whatever extent it's been sustained. And then just other regular human being things. 
Um, cl- uh, clearly, we both value our black identity. We value it in different ways, slightly, but we do we, we clearly value it. And so, to be in a in a school environment or a professional environment where I had somebody who I felt had my back as a brother and all that kind of stuff was very affirming uh, to whatever. And I and I don't think I, w- I I'm not the kind of person that expresses that kind of thing. Um, partly because of the stubbornness, partly because I was trying to keep my head down and do my job. And, and I had all the, I, had the, I think now a mistaken philosophy about how I don't really want to get my emotions involved. I'm just a professional. Um, I've only recently began to challenge that. But at the time, that's probably one that's, of the biggest hey, reasons why. I, say, I, say, I, I would say, hey, let's just push the balls button real quick and make space and appreciate that. I think that's so much growth, bro. Um, I think that's a beautiful thing. And like I said, I, I said it, I kind of hinted towards it last time, but I think that it's been cool to really see and feel your growth. And, you know, you could say that you just, you know, you added a layer, but I just think that it's, it's growth, man. It's growth. Well, yeah. So we're going to transition then, uh, awkward or not, uh, to the subject proper. So we are actually here in our deep dive episode to talk uh, about a particular kind of crisis. And it's going to involve um, a lot of uh, different political matters or matters of political and social import. And that crisis is uh, the opioid crisis um, that is... Um, of such a significance and such a scale that it's actually negatively impacting communities all over the country in red states, in blue states, liberal uh, areas, uh, conservative havens, et cetera. Mm-hmm. In fact, in many ways, I think that it's probably, um, or it has very distinctive impacts in red areas or conservative areas, probably even more so than the more populated blue areas, um, even though it is showing up there too. Um, mm-hmm. It has inextricable links to um, surges that we're seeing in things like homelessness uh, mental health issues, um, um, uh, uh, crime, uh, particularly even violent crime, but also nonviolent crime. Um, and, and even the ways that we talk about that in our public discourse, um, in many ways are probably not conducive to, uh, helping us, uh, solve solutions because the ways with which our discourse manifests itself these days is very toxic and it's very, it, it seems very much rooted in dunking on the other side as opposed to coming together to find solutions, which is uh, part and parcel of, uh, or at least it would be an ideal way to use our political prowess and our ability to, to come together and solve issues, no matter what side of the spectrum you're on. At least that's mm-hmm. a philosophy one could have. So I want to I want to throw it to you to kind of unwrap us because you've done a lot of research about this. What is What is the nature of the crisis, if you can try to summarize it briefly? What What is the... Um, so I want to. I want to. I want to start right, off. Sorry. What, what is the? What is the? The, the drug. I, I can't. I lost. I blanked on it. Opioids. Opioid. So, what is the opioid crisis? Sorry. Sorry. Fentanyl, uh, oxycodone. Right. It all yeah. depends on what phase we're talking about. Um, it also depends on what what time period we're talking about. So, like, is we're also talking about heroin. So, um, I just want to say that I'm not a drug related expert, an addiction related expert in any sense, man. I'm just a person who's really interested in what's going on with uh, my fellow Americans, with what's going on in society. I've always been really interested in culture and I'm a political science major, so I'm always interested in power dynamics. And so what has been, got me, one of the things that I have been able to see and just as a person who watched documentaries and stuff like that, um, are just the numbers, man. Like this is a significant issue. So it's so significant and it's so dynamic and growing that if you go and do a Google search, and you're like, oh, so like how many people died of, you know, are dying of fentanyl or dying of opioid related uh, uh, drugs? You can find like, like basically like 
hot topics or hot charts that, that say, oh my gosh, it's growing so much. But if you keep on looking, you just see that it keeps changing year to year to year because it's growing. So if you look at, and one of the things we were talking about beforehand, uh, over the 15 to 20, it was actually a 20 year, year war within the Vietnam War, 59,000 Americans died. And literally as of 2017, 60,000 people have upwards of more than 60,000 people have died just from opioid related um, 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 opioid related like overdoses or suicides in one year. And I thought, oh, that's a crazy stat. Like I'm interested. You've piqued my interest. This is, this is crazy. What's going on? And then just to find out that in 2017, it was six, I'm looking at the numbers now. In, in 2017, it was 70,000. And I'm like, oh, okay, so I need a new graph. I can't use this graph for the presentation I want to use. And then it's like, no, actually, now that I go to the CDC and I actually check out the latest numbers, the latest numbers that they, that they were able to record from December 2020 to December 2021, it's 107,000 people have died. And I think that's also probably including some type of, you know, because it's COVID year. So it's probably like, you know, COVID exacerbated everything. But for the numbers to be that crazy, I was just like, what? Like, you know, like I, like I've seen home, as you said, I've seen homelessness seem to be spiking a little bit more and all that kind of stuff. But like, this is just a crazy epidemic that we're in. And it's just, and I, and I, so for me, it's just like, I want to empathize first and foremost with the people who have family members or are going through something like that. If you're listening to this, I'm not trying to galvanize or, or make light of anything that real people are going through. But I think that it's something that needs to be talked about. You know, and it needs to be, and, and I, to your point, like, I like the idea of, like, how can we come together from whatever background that you're coming from, uh, ideology, uh, as far as your political um, disposition, and how can we come together and start thinking through, like, how do we begin to solve this? Because I don't, because one of the things that I just had a conversation with my, my brothers yesterday about this is that I don't think it's something that gets solved overnight because it wasn't something that got set up overnight, you know? And, and so, um, yeah. My bad. I say all that to say that's why I was interested in it. And I say, and if I want to give a brief synopsis of what's going on, it, it seems like this opioid crisis has come in three phases. Um, even though opioids have been used since the beginning, not the beginning, but since like ancient China days, as far as using for pain relief. Um, the, the way that we're getting ready to talk about it in, today is the ways in which it sprung up in the 1990s. So in the mm-hmm. mid-1990s, as we were going through the war on, on drugs, uh, pharmaceutical companies. So the first phase one was the pharmaceutical companies pushing the idea that um, opioids are not as addictive as had been previously like already known. Um, and that was just basically a, ca- a cash grab. And they've been later on sued uh, within uh, lawsuits, both in Canada and the United States, showing that they knew that it was as addictive. So you have the idea of, of giving a whole bunch of Americans prescription oxycodone. Um, mm. And them getting addicted to that and then moving on to phase two when the government finally caught up in, in around 2005, 2008, when they were able to catch up and say, hey, start regulating a lot more. That left a lot of people who were dependent upon it to go to the streets. And then that's when all of a sudden heroin, which was something that we thought was for me in your age group, was something that are like, you know, that was like people who from who got back from Vietnam were dealing with or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Heroin started to go ahead. Heroin overdoses started to go up because you have. That's the phase two of it. You have heroin on the streets that are now sub, um, being sublimated for that uh, that previous oxycodone, and then now we've moved it. We've moved into um, as of 2014, we've moved into the synthetic uh, opioid crisis, in which now you have, you know, now that it's on the black market, heroin has now been it's, it was cut, and then now it's being used now with fentanyl, which is 
fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. Um, I'm going to assume our viewers know what synthetic means and, and opioids are. But um, the idea is that it's 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine. And, um, and this is, I'm, I'm reading it right now off, off, the, off the chart. And then so, and that's the phase three of it. And that's kind of what the huge bigger impact is because it's way more deadly and way more addictive. Mm-hmm. And so and so that's kind of what we're dealing with. But guess what? As of like last year, there's a phase four in which they're now moving into, um, it's called benzo and trank. And that's considered mm-hmm. to be even way more addictive than fentanyl. There's a whole documentary on, on on Vice News in which they talk in which they highlight a drug dealer who's considered to be the moral drug dealer by sticking to just using fentanyl and not cutting it with benzoin and trick because it's literally that bad, mm-hmm. and, and, they're, and they're seen as the moral one. So I think yeah. I just think that you know to your point, we see all these ramifications of it, and people are dying in mass all in North America. It's starting to move over into Europe, and now it's finally it's it's over in Africa now also. Mm-hmm. And I think that. Um, for me, it's like it's it's a phenomenon that's like wow to see, but also I think that it has a lot to do with where our society is and, and how we deal with pain and and I feel like there's a global pain that people are trying to deal with and we're just not dealing with it in in any sustainable way, both from a political point of view, from a personal point of view, and from a community point of view. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. I uh, while you were talking, I was able to find some figures. Uh, I, I researched them yesterday. I was trying to find them, uh, scramble to find them. I want to show three figures to the audience, and then get your commentary on them as well because they fit in. I think they uh, they offer and, and some of this you may have seen specifically or things like it, um, but here I have this little feature where I can show things on the screen for the audience. So this figure one is uh, national drug involved overdose deaths. Now, what I want to point out about this is it starts from nineteen nineteen, uh, not, sorry nineteen ninety nine, and goes all the way to twenty twenty. So that was uh, two years ago, and it's all drugs. It's not just opioids. Um, so every single drug that we recorded overdose deaths for is all compiled here. Um, and it is, uh, it got, uh, in 2020, it got to about 91,799. Um, and, uh, it also has these two lines here that divides them into males and females. And it seems like, uh, males are way more prone, um, to overdose deaths than females. And I, and I kind of thought that was interesting cause I never really thought about, um, uh, t- certain demographics being affected more than others. I would love to find one that does this by race because. Oh well, I already have. Suspicion... have... No, okay. Well, I, what I was going to say is, my suspicion is that they're going to there's going to be a disproportionately high amount of black and brown people who are being who are facing these kinds of things because they tend to be associated with poverty or the conditions of poverty, oh. and black and brown people statistically tend to be uh, statistically speaking more likely to be under the living under those conditions. So that's that's what that's my the basis of my hypothesis. But um, also, oh. you there's a there's a way for you to share your screen too. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. Exact, I, I don't. You know, I don't... No, I think that that's a really dope feature, and I like the way it came up. Like, that was really, like, the transition for that was really dope. But, um, no, so what you're saying, you know, it's crazy because what you're saying is that that thought process is actually very true, right? Like, what you're talking about. But what is particularly interesting about this particular, um, as I was explaining, phase one. So what happened with this, because keep in mind, this happened in the middle of what you're talking about, which was the, which was the um, war on drugs. And the stigma was that you know, black and brown communities are the ones that are, are being addicts and then the ones that are you know, destroying their own communities and X, Y, and Z, and then we have to do something against it. So when I was talking about the pharmaceutical companies coming in to communities, and or not just communities, but to talking to doctors and giving them uh, uh, access to oxycodone and, and having that, that push, both lobbying for it and also pushing for it, that was actually 
done specifically in white communities. That was done in white communities for this particular thing. Like that was done in white communities because they were trying to offset that stigma of like, no, like, you know, we're dealing with people who won't be dealing with addiction. They're going to be perfectly fine. Cool. In the meantime, I'm going to show just so that there's no dead time, uh, the second figure and I'm going to uh, kind of talk about it. So this figure right here that you're, you're looking at is a uh, figure two from the same source. It's a national drug involved overdose deaths, but it individuates them with these different colored lines uh, by types of drugs, uh, presumably. Uh, so synthetic opioids other than methadone. So primary fentanyl is the highest one by far, especially if you get to 2020. Um, it kind of became the highest one right around the end of 2015 going into 2016 and skyrocketed uh, in 2020. Um, and it comprises uh, in 20 as of 2020, um, just under, it, it appears, 60,000 deaths uh, for the year 1919. 19, uh, yeah, for the year 2020. Um, then you also have these other ones. Um, Psychostimulants with abuse potential, primarily methamphetamine, so meth, uh, cocaine, prescription opioids is another one. Uh, so that's a different type of op uh, opioid. Uh, these are natural and semi-synthetic opioids and methadone. Um, heroin. Uh, so actually, it seems like yeah, most of these are types. Most of these are actually types of opioids now that, that I'm looking at it. And again, I'm not an expert either in these things. But I know for a fact that synthetic opioids are a type of opioid. Heroin is technically yeah. a type of opioid. And you know what? You know what's being highlighted here is exactly what I was getting ready to say when you, when you had the other the other graph up, which was a lot of what was fueling because you had all drugs up. But I was saying that mm -hmm. a lot of what was fueling um, that grow, that rise, and actually it's funny because this is 2020, and as I just quoted beforehand, because yours was at 91,000, it had mm -hmm. the next year just continued to go up at up to 107,000, but mm -hmm. it is the sixfold um, increase in synthetic fentanyl overdoses like it's mm -hmm. like blowing up within the last couple years um yeah. so that yes you, you could, and i'm glad you have this graph you can see it but i now found the website with the exact quote if you want me to if, if i can now share yeah uh so go ahead and uh share your screen and uh, then it will make this one smaller let me see it's this one right here and then share okay and then i'm gonna bring it on there you go all right, you should be able right. to control it. So right here, um, as you can see, it's explaining right here that racial attitudes and socioeconomic uh, trends also helped the opioid epidemic to gain a foothold in the United States. Purdue Pharma, which was one of the, the pharmaceutical companies I was talking about that was going on that campaign in the mid-1990s to uh, like legalize and lobby uh, oxycodone. Mm -hmm. It says uh, Purdue Pharma focused the initial marketing of oxycodone on suburban and rural white communities. That strategy took advantage of the prevailing image of a drug addict as an African-American or Hispanic person who lived in the inner city to head off potential concerns about addiction, says Helena Hansen, an anthropologist and a psychiatrist at NYU Lagoon Health in New York City. The company targeted doctors who were serving, quote unquote, serving patients that were not thought to be at risk of addiction. Uh, there was a definite racial subtext to that. And so that's why, like, to your point, like you had made that point that, yes, like, you would think that the hardest hit. And if you look at the heroin, which is similar, right, heroin uh, uh, issues that happened, or even, the, you know, crack epidemic, right, these things did impact people who were in poverty, who also in the United States tended to be black or brown. But it's crazy how this, this uh, pharmaceutical company kind of, like, knew that and said, if they're going to get ready to start to, like, push something that they knew was addictive, then what they would do is move towards a, 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 a set of people who were quote unquote safe who obviously couldn't be addicted because that's what those black and brown people were doing. And mm -hmm. so 
that's a very interesting, that's why I was saying when you said that, I was like, yeah, that's what you would think, but not with this particular one, right? And I think that it's particularly nefarious because, you know, this is coming from a pharmaceutical company and this is what people are, people are getting this from their doctors, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a certain level of trust and then people mm-hmm. are being overprescribed by their doctors. See, in, within, this, within this document, it talks about how a, a system of vulnerability, right? Because it's also because of how the, the system, our healthcare system is set up around doctors having private practice and they're being incentivized then to, um, you know, that's the way they can make money is through giving out these prescription drugs. Because again, these prescription drugs are going to be covered by, by uh, their patient's healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's and the, the and, a, and the pharmaceutical companies that create the drugs or manufacture the drugs get the money. Exactly. That's a profit-driven... Exactly. It's perverse economic incentives. And that, and I think that as much as like, you know, we can bash like the origins, but I just think that it's important for everybody to understand that this is the origin, right? And that it's multifaceted, right? That that not only quote unquote what we suggest to be, uh, and I, I'll stop sharing. How do I? I'll go ahead and stop sharing. But um, um, yeah, I, I got. This. I'm no longer sharing. Um, but not only the communities that we have historically seen as being quote unquote vulnerable are the ones that are being targeted by what's going on with right now. So like right now, yes, at this point within fentanyl because it's back into the black market aspect of it all everybody can get it right like it, it's all over the country and it, and it has a lot it's definitely related to homelessness and, and, and poverty and all that kind of stuff but the idea of seeing how like this this addiction or this uh, demand was kind of manufactured by the supplier you know uh, mm-hmm. i think it's, it's it's just crazy to look at um just to put in context uh, uh purdue pharma and another company in in in, in canada they were both sued uh, Purdue Pharma, I have it on that same article, was sued um, 600... Share, share it again. So we can sure, go. okay, I'll share, I'll share it right now because it's right here. Um, let's see. Let me put up a tag. And here and here. Uh, here it is right here, as you can read. It says, it's talking about the structure. It says, uh, Canada shares some of these vulnerabilities, for, for example, like their counterparts in the United States, Canada, Canada as entrepreneurs who are paid by the unit, and they too were subject to aggressive marketing by opioid manufacturers, alleged um, a can 1.2, uh, 1.1 billion, which is really 752 lawsuit filed in May on Ontario Superior Court of the Justice uh, in Gilith, I think that's saying. But beforehand, it should say that... No, not beforehand. I think afterwards it talks about how uh, Purdue Pharma. I think it's actually beforehand. Purdue Pharma was was also sued um, six hundred and seventy five million dollars because the idea was that they actually knew. Here it is, right here. Sorry, it's right here. It says, in fact, opioids are not particularly effective for treating chronic pain. With long term use, people can develop tolerance of the drug and even uh, become more sensitive to pain. And in claim that oxycodone was less addictive than other opioid painkillers was untrue. Purdue Pharma knew that it was addictive, as it admitted in a 2007 lawsuit that resulted in a $635 million fine for the company. So, you know, it's not conspiracy theory. It's not like me, like, you know, like saying, oh, it's always big companies and it's big pharma. It's like, no, like this was something that went to court and it was, it was shown that, you know, you knew these things were addictive. But guess what? If you're just a person that's in history, Right from ancient China using o- opioids in the poppy plant, all the way to if you know what was going on after the uh, Vietnam War with people that 
veterans that were coming back traumatized and were, were strung out on uh, on um, heroin. We know that this is a very addictive thing, right? Like we already knew that. It's just it is they came back and marketed it in a particular way, and they marketed it to a particular population, mm-hmm. and that is the nexus by which once you start regulating it now, and that's why everything can't be a political solve because now you're politically thinking, oh, legislators, federal government, you guys need to start regulating this so that people are not, or so that um, doctors are not over, um, are not over uh, prescribing this drug. And you're like, oh, that's a great thing to do. Well, guess what? You haven't supplanted the actual, because you've already had the impact. And so you haven't supplanted the actual need. People still need their drugs. And so now they're going to the streets and we know how that works. Cause it, cause for me, that's the true free market right there, right? It's like, hey, we're definitely not worried about any of the morals that come with it. Well, I'm trying to go ahead and, and get my profit on the black market. And so what happens if you have heroin, which then, well, how do I get even more money? Well, let me go ahead and cut it with fentanyl, with a synthetic drug. And so now I can either charge more because it's cheaper. And then the impacts of it is even stronger, 50 to 100 times stronger. So, and, and now, isn't it more? Isn't it more addictive? Yes. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna go over this video. Actually, illustrates and it's about six or seven minutes. It's gonna it's gonna feel long uh, for us, but I I think it's gonna be informative, so it's gonna be worth it. It goes over what exactly is happening in the brain um, yeah. when your brain is becoming addicted to opioids, like exactly what centers of the brain is causing, and it works intimately with your nervous system. Opioids are drugs that are prescribed to treat moderately severe or severe pain. Examples of these drugs include hydrocodone, oxycodone, morphine, hydromorphone, and methadone. Heroin, an illegal drug, is also an opioid. In order to understand how opioids work, it's important to know how your body feels pain. The process begins when something harmful happens to your body. Information about this harm is converted to a nerve signal. The signal passes along nerves to your spinal cord and brain. In your brain, the signal is perceived as pain. Opioid drugs affect how you feel pain. They attach to structures called opioid receptors. These receptors are found on cells in your brain, spinal cord, and other areas of your body. Opioids act on these receptors to make you feel less pain. These drugs also have different effects in other areas. For example, opioids act on the reward pathway in your brain. This causes a release of a chemical called dopamine that results in a happy feeling or high. Opioids may also cause slower breathing, and they may cause reduced motion of your intestines, resulting in constipation. For most people, when opioids are taken as prescribed for a short time, they are fairly safe and effective. But these drugs can be taken in ways that weren't prescribed, such as taking too many, taking them to get high, or giving them to someone else. Misusing these drugs can raise your risk of developing drug tolerance, dependence, addiction, and overdose. Tolerance means the drug is less effective over time. This can happen when opioid receptors become less sensitive to the effects of the drug. As a result, more of the drug needs to be taken for you to get pain relief. Dependence happens if a person has symptoms when they stop using the drug. 
When the drug is removed or withdrawn, you feel sick. This sickness is called withdrawal. Opioid withdrawal has flu-like symptoms that include restlessness and anxiety, muscle aches, inability to sleep, watery eyes and runny nose, nausea and vomiting, stomach cramps and diarrhea, and dilated or widened pupils. Opioid addiction is a brain disease where you have an overwhelming craving for the drug. You can't stop taking the drug despite the harm it may cause you. Addiction is not the same as dependence. You can be tolerant of a drug or dependent on a drug without being addicted to it. Yes, there we go. Okay, cool. So the idea that when you're just when you're just less sensitive to the drug, you're tolerant. When you're physical dependent to it and you have withdrawal symptoms and you're dependent, but unable to sleep using the drug then makes you addicted. I don't no, know. Unab unable to stop using the drugs. Oh, stop. Okay, got you. Yeah. Unable to stop using the drug. And that would make you addicted. So if somebody who's dependent would have withdrawal systems and physical dependency and, and be less sensitive to the drug, but they would be able to stop? Presumably. So uh, the, the distinction seems to turn on the ability to stop using the drugs. Um, I don't know if that means like if you stop, you'll die. Like what? what, what is it that makes you unable to stop? Is it a will thing? Or is right. it like it, is it like you're like you're physiologically like you would die if you stopped? Well, for me, it would feel like the withdrawal symptoms would be so bad that you would you would feel like you couldn't stop. So that's why I don't really understand it, and I don't understand it. So maybe this is like would be a great example. Where maybe if we had an expert. Yeah, I, I mean, I wish yeah, <laughs> I wish there was one just ready, just handy, like, hey, press a button. Yeah, like, yeah, hey, I'm an expert. Like why? Um, Right now, if right now it feels like right now it feels like the real distinction is that if you're because the only thing I would think of outside what you just said is whether or not you could actually die. And I don't know if that's the case, but only I can think of is that the person who is dependent, their withdrawal systems are are more moderate than the person who's addicted, who's quote unquote addicted. Their withdrawal systems are just so much more severe that they feel like they can't actually mm -hmm. stop. And I think that seems like to be because that would be the I mean if in you know. I don't know. I don't want to say I know a whole bunch of drug addicts or anything like that, but mm -hmm. it's the withdrawal. Well, I, I, well the, the, so just kind of philosophically, it, there there seems to be a pretty intuitive distinction between feeling like you're unable to do something versus being unable to do something. And if the definition is that you're unable to stop, to me, that seems like it's stronger than just you feel that way. Um, now, obviously, this is going to entail feelings or there's going to be a subjective experience of these of of what it means to be dependent and what it means to be addicted, and so that's going to entail how you feel. They went over a lot of the symptoms um, in terms of nausea, things like that. We are going through withdrawals, um, so withdrawal symptoms is definitely a part of both dependence and addiction. I think colloquially, though, we talk about addiction so casually that it, it makes it actually hard in this instance to distinguish between dependence and addiction because a lot of the symptoms associated with dependence we would consider addiction, and a lot of times we talk informally about being addicted to things even when we're not even necessarily dependent on them in this way. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and I just, I, yeah, I hear you, but I, I, I take unable. I don't. For me, this unable just seems so much more subjective. I mean, yeah, it's so much more subjective. Like unable, I feel like this has to do with, with the person. Well, yeah, it's definitely going to be subjective because we're talking about a subject with these symptoms. But there's my reading of unable is that it's not just a matter of your perception, though, right? Like it's not just that you you feel or believe you can't stop. 
it's got to be something a little it feels like it's something stronger like you just can't like it like in the sense of like i'm unable to lift a ton like it's not that i just perceive that <laughs> it's not that i just don't have confidence in my lifting abilities it's like i physiologically cannot do that and that's the whole thing i would love to um because i think that would be a, a, a really great description because uh, i can see myself moving into a bias of like no, well, your willpower is just not strong enough or something like that. And I just don't know exactly what it is. Because like, if it is something like that, then I now understand that distinction a lot more. Like, no, this person, like, within their own realm of, like, like not just within their own, but, like, just the idea that once you get to this point, most well, people... Literally, no human being has ever lifted that much weight. Right. And, that, and that's what I'm saying. Is, this, is there, like, a point of no return in which you get to this point and now it's, like, without, you know full 360 scale treatment will you ever be able to come back because nobody could ever like to the mm -hmm. to the same metaphor nobody could actually live that time mm -hmm. you know well i mean there's this to steel man it a little bit there is and i'm getting a little maybe too philosophical but there is like this idea of like things that are kind of on the edge of your abilities or capabilities so like when you're trying to max lift um there is a mental component that will impact ultimately whether or not you're able to perform the lift. So if you go into it thinking you can't do it, that actually does impact physiologically whether or not you'll be successful. And that's kind of where I was at with it because I'm thinking to myself like, yeah, like, but because I keep on thinking of the dependent person as being a, a, a quote unquote more functional person. So like they're still going to work. They're still like people who are like functionally using cocaine and stuff like that. Like they're... They, they would have a withdrawal with, with symptoms if they stopped. They are dependent. They do have less sensitivity to it. But they're going to work and everything's fine because it's not like, you know, they're still functional. Whereas when I think it's somebody who's addictive, and again, I could be problematic in thinking, because I'm again, I'm a neophyte in all understanding. I just want to know more. Is that I think somebody who's addicted is that they can't even really do the rest of their stuff because they can't even have the urge to be like, all right, I, I need to go 12 hours because I need to be able to work or whatever. And then mm -hmm. I'll, have my, I'll have my fix or whatever. They're just like unable to actually stop using it. So therefore it just becomes completely consuming to their whole day. All they're doing is figuring out how to get to and how to come back from it. And they can't really do anything else that's not functioning. Finally, opioid overdose is a condition where taking too much of the drug can cause life-threatening symptoms or even death. The symptoms of opioid overdose can include confusion, feeling very sleepy or not alert, nausea and vomiting, constricted or small pupils, unconsciousness, slow or stopped breathing, and death. According to the Centers for Disease Control, over 100 Americans die each day from opioid overdoses. If you have questions about opioids, or if you or someone close to you needs help for an opioid use disorder, talk to your healthcare provider. Okay, I got one more figure to show, and then I want to get into the policy stuff. So this is the third figure, a third of three. Uh, national overdose deaths involved any op involving any opioid uh, from 1999 to, to 2020. Um, so the 91,000 figure uh, was all drugs. But the 68,630 figure that we see now uh, is, oh, I can full screen this too. Ha, huh. I didn't realize that till just now. Um, sorry. So this is uh, just involving opioids. And so whatever the difference between 91,000 and 68,000 is, like those that would be all of the other drugs that are non-opioids. Oh, yeah, um, 
But so I'm wondering if the in the data you you had when when it became a hundred thousand is that all drugs or is it just opioids? Well, I, I didn't know that the hundred thousand was from 2020 to 2021, and so my inclination is that it's probably relate also related to like COVID. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that the pandemic created a lot of conditions where people felt depressed, they felt down. A lot of people weren't able to socialize in the normal ways. There was a very chaotic uh, set of circumstances. People were dying. Um, there was the there was the uncertainty of who would be next. Uh, there was a lot of political unrest, civil unrest. Um, the 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 George Floyd protests are one manifestation of that civil unrest. Um, you had a lot of uh, uh, of depression and mental illness uh, type related things that skyrocketed. Quiet as yeah. it's kept. So all of those conditions combined over an entire society, really the globe, but 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 in our within our society, I think would definitely contribute to the kinds of things that lead people to want to, uh, in some sense, kind of. Alleviate that pain. Alleviate the pain. Alleviate, yeah, the depression. uh, Self, uh, what do what do you call it? Self, self soothe. -soothe. And so I think that that created probably a maximization of the conditions that probably normally lead people to use drugs. So that there's at least uh, a hypothesis there. So it actually does make sense. And I know for a fact because I I did a lot of reading on this that um, in youth, particularly um, mental mental health concerns and depression and things like that among young people were were like at an all time high. It was ridiculous. Yeah, I think um, they've also been at an all time high period, right? Like even yeah, in general, yeah, yeah. General. yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, COVID, we made made everything. The panic made everything even, even crazier. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so so that makes sense. Uh, why it would skyrocket under the conditions of the pandemic. And that's probably, those conditions are probably contributing factors. Um, but I, it, it doesn't answer the question specifically of the whether the 100,000 plus mark that you see is purely opioids or is it all drug overdoses? Do you have a, a yeah. way to yeah. check that? Uh, yeah, sure. We can, we can, I think I have that website. Is this it? And then you can, you can share it whenever you're ready. Uh, well, yeah, so what I want to, so let's stamp some things and then we're going to get into the policy stuff. So the, the nature of the crisis is kind of what we've been able, we've been trying to explore. We've been trying to cite our sources and, and, and be as fact-based as possible, both of us being non-experts and be as informative as possible. Um, but we're talking about a large scale epidemic or problem. Um, that implicates uh, the mental and physical well-being of a lot of people. And um, it's been growing numbers of drug-related overdoses. Um, And we're getting to a scale that is actually on par and in some places actually supplanting or outdoing the amount of people that were dying of COVID. So if if COVID is going to be the frame of reference and how horrifying that was to have all of those people dying of COVID, like this problem is is now starting to surpass that or at least okay. it did in the most recent year okay go ahead and share sure um, here okay here you go drug-related overdose and death epidemic continues to worsen so this is up to september 7 2002 so Pretty updated. 
The nation's drug overdose epidemic continues to change and become worse. The epidemic affects every state and now is driven by illicit fentanyl, fentanyl analogs, methamphetamine, and cocaine, often in combination or in adulterated forms. More than 107,000 deaths were reported in the United States between December 2020 and uh, December 2021. That, That sounds like all drugs. It's not just, even though it's primarily driven by those opioids it's it seems like it's all drug overdoses it does um yeah it it does i, I just clicked on the reported part i don't know can you guys still, can you still see my screen i i see it switched to the new thing you're looking at now provisional yeah, drug so overdose I, death I, I, yeah so I, I looked at it to see what it which one was uh yeah it does seem like it's all drugs but i don't see there's a distinction but the vast majority, so I think we can establish that the vast majority of, of the drug overdoses are actually opioids, though, which is why it makes sense to hone in on opioids because they comprise oh, yeah. probably oh, yeah. north for of 70% sure. of them. For sure. They wouldn't introduce it like that if it wasn't based off of the fentanyl related stuff. Um, and also, like, as to one of your sides I already showed, like, there's, there's just this continued growth in a particular um, area around fentanyl uh, use. Mm-hmm. And I, like I said, there's a like I said, it, it's fentanyl. Is like I said, we we're seeing the numbers from, but there's also this this drug, this benzo and drink, and that's supposed to be even stronger, uh, even more addictive. Um, but yeah, so it so then that hundred thousand. But nevertheless, I mean, still, I mean, still an epidemic of freaking drug overdoses, right? Mm-hmm. And I and I think that the hundred thousand is just crazy. Like, did you have that uh, know what the um, numbers are around COVID? Uh in a year's time, so the first year, um, oh, it was like it was like right around a hundred thousand. I, I don't know if it was a little bit above or a little bit below, but it was close. And the second year, even after we got the vaccines, was more. Uh, I remember that, but I don't know exactly what the numbers are. I can look them up if you want me to, though. Yeah, I'm already, I'm already looking up. I said, how many people died of COVID in 2020? And I'm getting a graph. I want to say 107,000, but I could be wrong. Let's see. Uh, I don't. I, I'm not getting the number right off the uh, right off the state, right off the gate. Um. So I don't know. Yeah. I'm gonna Which Google COVID deaths by year. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to do. This is hospitalizations, vaccines. Damn, they really. I don't know why they won't show it like that, and, and this kind yeah, of it's complicated, right? Because because you, you can say like you died of COVID or like COVID as an underlying cause of death, right? So like because yeah. if you have pre-existing conditions and you get COVID, then you die, right? Like uh-huh. so, yeah. I guess that is kind of a little bit more murky on figuring out exactly what the, what the number is. Yeah, dying with COVID versus dying of COVID is is a murky distinction, and we yeah, didn't really. So, distinguish them and i think partly for politically motivated reasons but i don't want to be a conspiracy theorist right now but i'm i'm actually still flabbergasted that there's not like a year by year yeah exactly so you're seeing exactly what i'm saying now they're not really they're giving me hospitalizations they're giving me shit by state but not like like what like to me it feels like they're hiding information (laughs) and that's weird to do because like why would you hide that COVID deaths in 2021 surpassed 2020. Okay, this is okay. Hold on, but I want to know the numbers though. 
Okay. So we're, well, we're in the, um, as we're looking for the numbers, um, and if we want to shift over towards a conversation around um, a conversation around what has been the re- the, the policy reactions, um, cultural reactions to um, this particular crisis. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry, I, I found something. So sorry, data from John Hopkins okay. University. So let me sorry, let me let me share this real quick. Yes, yeah, sir. Sorry, because I it's just because I found it so quick. I just I don't want to move off of it now that I found it because I, I felt like I could be able to find it pretty quick. Uh, okay. Um, let me. Sh- nope, that's not what I want. I want this guy. Okay. Uh, so this is from Spectrum News. Apparently, um, the title: U.S. COVID deaths in 2021 surpassed 2020 total. Uh, okay. So, according to data from John Hopkins University, more than 353,000 coronavirus deaths have been reported this year, topping the 352,000 recorded in 2020. So, there were 352,000 in 2020, 353,000 in 2021, for a total of 705,831, like, since the pandemic began. So, yeah, so that's more than triple the amount of people. So I guess we were just wrong, if this is correct. Which I'm glad we looked this up, because I, I don't want to misinform anyone. Wait, the number of new... Okay. Okay, so I don't know. What do you... What do you what are your, what's your yeah, reaction I, to that? I mean, I think that it is, again, amazing how many people got from COVID. That freaking sucks. But I also think that... Um, and I, I think about how global and how much um, publicity that got. And I'm thinking about like, well, if even if it is a third of those people dying from overdoses around, um, all overdoses around drug related situation, I'm thinking, is this getting a third of the fucking coverage? You know, is it getting a third of the attention? And I don't think so. There's um, 360 million people in the United States, so 352,000 would be a 0.1 percent of the population. Is that am I right? Or yeah. is it one percent? Well, you said you said there's three hundred a, a million to a thousand would be one percent or zero point one percent. Is it a is it a it's 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 zero point one. Okay. So zero point one percent roughly of the population died in two in, in a year. Mm-hmm. Um it's not nothing. It's pretty it's pretty freaking significant. Um the vast majority of them though were elderly, unfortunately. Um but yeah, I mean, I don't know. The fact that more people than that died the second year after we had vaccinations is also interesting. Um, not to try to put my conspiracy hat on, but I do think that that warrants an explanation of some sorts. Now, the one I, the ones I've heard is that um, the variants Omicron included, Delta included, were um, way more infectious and therefore were able to kill more people in the same span of time. Yeah, so I'm that's at least a hypothesis. Act, uh, I'm not going to act like... I'm not going to act like I... Can really understand that whole process with vaccines and people trying to just like one way or the other. I've heard a lot of different conspiracy theories. I just think that what was interesting to me to see is the ways in which you had access to public things or access to jobs, access to different things in society based off whether or not you had vaccination. You don't think? I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to start 
a whole new spinoff conversation, but I do think that that's a very interesting thing to consider is the ramifications of that or the ways in which that kind of thing can be abused in the future. I think a lot of people are thinking about that, but to try to circle back to what we're talking about, because I do want to get into policy. So there is a policy question here that's vexing in terms of what the best way to address these issues are. I think we did a fairly good job as non-experts uh, trying to give our audience a conception of the scale of what we're talking about, how many people are, are dying of drug overdoses, why this is a big problem, and why it's a problem that at least there is some warrant for people on various sides of the political spectrum to come together because it's not just black and brown people in the inner city areas that are mostly blue or Democrat-run states. Uh, or cities. Um, there's also a bunch of people in rural Bible Belt states and areas that are suffering as well. Um, and so it, it, it would actually be interesting if we could find it sometime before we're, we're done recording to see a breakdown demographically by race, uh, because I think there's a lot, a significant amount of white people, actually. Um, it's not just black and brown people. I think that the black and brown people might be disproportionately high relative to their percent of the country. Um, but I think that overwhelmingly it's white people. <laughs> um, I don't yeah. know if you if you had data to suggest that. Yeah, I'd have to look it up. But yeah, like I said, because I had already, I had already uh, shown the traces of how this opioid addiction has started through prescription drugs. And so white people have had a, light, a leg up quote-unquote, on this particular type of addiction, opioid uh, addiction, within the context that we're talking about it, uh, for quite some for quite some time. Um, so, and like you said, this is, it's, it's been devastating the rural areas that is kind of happening there first. Um, mm. But now, it's, but now at this point, it's everywhere. So, I, yeah, I, I know that I was getting ready to read an article that said that in, in the black community that we, that, that there was a, a significant spike, but I don't know if it's disproportionate yet. I have to look into it. Um, but yeah, around the policy issue, um, from my point of view, what I've been able to uh, see is that there seems to be like right now two prevailing um, ways in which people are trying to deal with the uh, addiction. And one is like the quote unquote liberal way of like trying to um, have officers uh, administer and carry Narcan and also have centers in which people can use um, less addicting uh, uh, similar uh, opioids such as uh, methadone to be able to kind of wing people off of it and, and for the idea so that they would be able to, because they're not overdosing, they'd be able to have the autonomy to say, all right, this is something I want to improve on, but they can do it in the most safer, in the most quote-unquote safe environment. That's one way that you see in like cities, quote-unquote blue cities. But then there's the other way that you see, which is like this idea that like you should just be able to just say no. And the, and the idea is like being able to just be abstinent from the, the, the particular drug and that, and that the government shouldn't be, not the government, but like public officials shouldn't be having Narcan because all you're doing is, is enabling people and or wasting resources, uh, wasting taxpayers' money um, on continuing to uh, basically enable addicts because they're, the idea is that they're going to continue to they're going to continue to be uh, um, a quote-unquote burden on that particular county or state if you continue to like do things that enable them to 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 do to uh, to be a, to continue to I don't know what is it to continue to adhere to their addiction of a particular drug and I and from my point of view I think that the Second one just doesn't work at all. I don't think people, I don't, I think as we were just looking at what happens to the physiology of your brain, I don't think people can just say no and just stop 
Um, but at the same time, I think what you probably want to talk about is you probably want to talk about a little bit more of the ways in which um, some of these centers or what's going on in San Francisco and how you feel like maybe the, it's causing a spillover of different type of uh, outcomes that are like not necessarily working towards the sol- solvency of like getting people off of the streets and, and no longer doing drugs. Um, yeah, in a second, though, because I just found a graph that I think uh, might be useful, which. OK, well, as you're doing that, I think that for me, as I've been reflecting on it, I don't think, to be honest, I don't. I think that, and I, and I don't want to be insincere, so I do think that there are things that the federal government and the government should be doing. But I, if I'm really thinking about, and also our medical industry, but if I'm really thinking about the causes of what we're experiencing, I think it's a, it's a lot of a, a symptoms, a cultural symptom of, of like American culture. And I, and I feel like we have to kind of depend a lot more on stopping like it getting worse from actually planning for the future in a long-term way than trying to think of like well what is this silver bullet that the government can do i don't even think we should be looking at the government to be able to solve this particular issue i think we need to be looking at our communities to be able to figure out well what can we do like what are the causes of addiction right and that's why i feel like way back beforehand that when some of the causes of addiction not just some of them but one of the significant uh, reasons for addiction, which I have that uh, slide still, I have that tab up, I can reference it, is childhood trauma. Um, and also issues related to at school, if, if drugs are at schools, if you have peer pressure to do drugs, you know, and I think that maybe those are the things we need to start moving towards solving now because it's going to be, it's going to be bad now and it's going to get worse to a certain extent until we start curving it through curving it through like actually changing the culture around how we approach illness. I think that part of the reason the issue in the beginning in the 90s was that you had a pharmaceutical company, regardless of whether or not they knew it was addictive or not, the idea is that if you have a pain, well, hey, you have this particular pain here, so we'll go ahead and like solve it by giving you this one pill. But then the pill ends up doing a side effect that we don't necessarily like. And I think that our medical industry, in the same way that our political spectrum, we need to start approaching things in a more holistic way. We need to stop we need to like approach things from a lifestyle point of view and not just from the point of view of like a particular medical like thing, like where it can be a pill. Because if you have a pain, there's probably something in your life that you're doing or are you eating? Are you obese? Are you X, Y, and Z? Like what else is going on with you that we can like move towards in a more holistic way? And I think all, and then like, if, we're, if we're considering the idea that people be, are more prone to be addicted, to, to be addicted when they become a if they go through childhood trauma that we should be trying to solve towards like making sure that we have safe spaces for our, our kids to be able to grow up and do all that type of stuff. And I feel like that's as, as idealistic as it sounds, as like, well, Malik, what do we do right now? I don't think there is an actual solver right now outside of the uh outside of like being able to like kind of control the bleeding around it. Um well I mean so I hear you uh, I hear the idealism point um, in particular. I I do think there's going to be so. My instinct is that a lot of what you said is going to be unsatisfactory because there's still a bunch of unanswered questions around what actual practical steps do we take at the level of policy, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be at the federal level. It can be maybe state level, local levels. But like, what steps do we take? to produce certain outcomes. And ideally what we want is we want to minimize the amount of people who are dying of drug overdoses, ultimately. 
we probably also want to minimize the amount of people who are becoming either dependent or addicted to drugs because those are inextricably linked, first of all. And secondly, that has a very intimate connection with your life prospects. Um, there's certain things that we can probably do to rearrange our society in such a way as to be more understanding of people who are in these situations. So that might be some cultural shifts, some paradigmatic shifts um, that can be done um, from a grassroots point of view, from the probably more effectively from grassroots as opposed to top down in terms of changing our consciousness. Um, that's one of the that's one of the I think good purposes for political activism. Let's say when it's when it's not when it's not toxic and done for kind of its own self-aggrandizing sake. Um, but like that's going to take a lot of time to change the consciousness of a of a country. Um, usually yeah. it does at least. So, no, so, sure. so, so that the, the groundwork is going to have to be so but what I'm saying is like that the the, the time scale is in the meantime while that's happening there's going to be presumably you know things in the status quo continuing and so maybe we want some more immediate stop gaps right so that's this is kind of why i'm approaching it so there's there's all of that stuff that's not really answered by a lot of things that you said it seems to me clear though that those who are left to center the progressive types do have a point about how the war on drugs approach the kind of no the kind of zero tolerance on drugs and incarceral uh, uh approach to uh, addressing drugs and the distribution of drugs and the possession of drugs and to a certain extent the use of drugs isn't really helping. Um, it hasn't helped historically. Um, despite those approaches, these trends have arisen. Um, and it doesn't really make sense to blame it all on the Democrats because this, this, <laughs> these trends have been rising steadily in rural areas that are run by Republicans. And the Republicans are the ones that are the least likely to implement these soft on drugs, soft on crime, whatever you want to call them, policies. So, and then also incarcerating people doesn't really solve their addiction, really. And also it, it almost maximizes the likelihood that they're going to, if, if they get out at all, that they're going to be hardened, that they're going to be more likely to, to, to just as a matter of survival, uh, stoop to various forms of criminality, including but not limited to probably distribution of drugs because it's one of the most profitable ones that they can do. And like there's a whole culture around it, uh, particularly like in part of that culture is instantiated or or let's say uh, perpetuated in prisons. <laughs> like the drug game is perpetuated in prison. Like you, a lot of motherfuckers get out of prison learning <laughs> how to do these things better without getting caught, uh, et cetera. Um, so that's clearly not a solution in terms of the ultimate aim that we want. Um, but, and this is where me and you kind of had a little debate yesterday. I don't know that the more compassionate alternative that tends to be part and parcel in these kind of blue Democrat run cities where they provide substitutes that are safer, like methadone. So we know that they're not cut with fentanyl, which is, which is way harmful. And their, their, their whole premise is based on harm reduction and, and decriminalizing and also destigmatizing drug use so that people will be more likely to come forward and get help. Um, those approaches in places like San Francisco and particularly the Tenderloin don't seem to be as effective either as currently instantiated, mostly because the part where the people get the help that they need is being de-emphasized in order to basically, in some sense, enable them to use their drugs more safely. And in a lot of cases, like a lot of these people are homeless and or suffering from various forms of mental illness that they don't really get um, uh, uh any any really relief for and the, well let me take that back so the homeless part there is there are things being done in san francisco in particular and also other places in the country to address the homeless issue they're um 
they were there were hotels for the homeless that was like a policy that was uh implemented uh within the last year by mayor london breed and so they were putting people who were homeless up in hotels uh for extended periods of time um i'm sure they had certain caveats around what they could and couldn't do and and but like i don't know how strictly enforced those were um but like i don't know man enabling people's drug habits and, and housing them doesn't really solve the core mental health issues that a lot of them face and it doesn't really solve their dependence or the addiction issues and if they and if and if it's all on a volunteer basis like all you can do is encourage them to do it but they if they don't see that it's an issue enough that they all they want is the drugs they don't really want the help then that's not going to help reach the ultimate goal of like helping people like not be addicted like deal with their addiction in a way that like allows them to kind of lead more or less healthy lives without this dependence because the dependence is actually what the thing that's compromising their lives in a lot of different ways um so i i don't know i don't know that either approach has been that successful overall although you can say that there's pros and cons to either one of them but so i want to start us there and kind of reinvigorate or reignite the debate we we're having yesterday but what do you say to any of that um i think i hear what you're saying um, and I, I just I just wonder if if it's if at this point in the in the crisis you the government can get to the ultimate solvency. I don't think it's that's, that's what I was trying to emphasize. I don't think it has to do with like well because I mean I saw the numbers on it too. So like I think in in the tenderloin you had two thousand people, two thousand one hundred and something people would come. In to actually use the the center to, to to do the drugs or whatever, but only like ten or fifteen of them would actually get a re referral to actually help them out with different services or something like that, right? Looking at the latest week of numbers, there were nearly twenty seven hundred visits, but only one hundred and forty four referrals for service. A referral means a guest was informed of how to get help, but there's no way of knowing if they followed through and connected to that help. And of those referrals, nine were for substance abuse treatment. In the same week, four visits had overdoses reversed on site. Well, at the end of the day, it's not about quantity. It's about quality. It's about trying to help those people out of addiction and stay out of addiction. And that's a process. So people may want us to do numbers and large numbers like it's some sort of factory, but these are people. These are people with complicated problems in their lives. Right. And so I get what you're saying. I'm, I'm not saying that what you're saying is not true. And I, I get I get that. But I don't think that at this point, once once they've you know, once they've already become addicts for whatever the plethora of reasons are, that that, that that's gonna be the age that, that it's the agency within the government to say, well, now we're gonna get you completely off of drugs. Because that to the Republicans' point of view, is the you have to have a certain amount of personal um Wherewithal with this and say, this is what you want to do, and this is the direction you want to do in your life. And so I think that, no, I don't want to make it seem like I'm demonizing you, but at the same time, I'm not going to take the humanity from you that is that you have a choice to make on how you want to live, be able to live your life. And that's something but if, that a person, if a person who's, who's quote unquote choosing to satiate their addiction, really making a choice, though, if they're addicted to the drugs? Like, like there, there's, a, no, there's an interesting no, kind no. of nuance there that I want to explore no. with you. So I, I think that I think that to a certain extent, yes. Like if if I'm going into like if I'm already addicted to the drug, and then I'm going into the, this, this these centers, which I know that oh I can go and use the drug and X Y Z, and there's going to be an opportunity for me to actually try some treatment or whatever. Like you can do your drug because that's what you're that's what you're there for, and you can also make the choice to get that referral. I'm not saying it's going to work. 
I'm just saying you also made that choice. You, you, you can also make that choice. There's nothing about your addiction that's keeping you from making that choice. It, the, the addiction has to do with you doing the drug. That's what I'm saying. The 2,000 people who did the drug, do the drug. That's the whole point. Like, you're addicted. I can't. I know you can't make the decision to not do the drug, but you can make the decision to do the referral and look into all the other services that can potentially help you. Now, what those services and those wraparound services are, I think, do need to be comprehensive so that we can make it easier on people to be able to actually fight the addiction. But you know what I mean? Like, well, I, I don't, I, I think it's a controversial claim you made. That... Like you can't take people's ability to make a choice because we're not going to force them. And so you can't take that. You have to, you have to acknowledge and encourage that. It's just like with a kid that's not, not that kid, but like a student that's not making the right choice. Like I can just keep the door open for you to make the right choice. I can't make you go through it because there's so much more humanity in making that choice for yourself. Because if I make the choice for you, you always just go back to making whatever choices that were really living within you to begin with. And so I, I, I but if but if you're enabling essentially the wrong choice though, that's that's a, that's the nuance I'm trying to get you to focus on. Where, where am I enabling the wrong choice? What what is the wrong? You're providing choice? you're providing them with space and opportunity to satiate their drug addiction. It may be motivated by compassion, but that's what you're doing. No, but they, wait. So that's just, that's what, that's what's going to happen regardless. They're going to get the drug addiction. They're going to satiate their drug addiction one way or the other, right? And well, so, okay, but but I thought the fundamental assumption is that they're doing that is the thing that you're trying to. Ultimately, you want them not doing because of the harms that it causes yeah, in their ultimately, lives. Ultimately, ultimately, the the burden of the government is to provide them the opportunity to get up out of that situation. And that's what you should be able to do. You should be able to give them the opportunity through not not demonizing them, to giving them actually spaces to be able to make that choice. But, wait, no, but I'm talking about the sorry. I'm talking about what the objective of the policies that we were that we are considering implementing is. I thought that it, it, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe you disagree with this. I thought that it, it was a safe assumption that ult, one of the ultimate goals that we want is to minimize the amount of people who are okay. doing the bad thing, which is doing Ooh. the drugs, which leads mm. to the overdose. No, no, wait, wait, wait. I thought you had said, and it's recorded, you had said that it was to minimize the uh, overdoses, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if yeah. I'm providing people with one of, that's, Yeah, okay, that's one I'm of the gonna, things I said. I'm going to match the things up. So if if I'm providing people with the opportunity, a safe space to use methadone, right, instead of using fentanyl, right, mm -hmm. then that means, as we had, I think we had both said, we had already, I don't know if we saw the clip together, but it cuts overdoses in half. So that's something that's yeah, so you No, we, I don't know if that was in the clip, but you said that yesterday, but. Yeah, it, it, was, in a, it was in a clip that I, that I showed yesterday or whatever, but that has been proven to cut overdoses in half, right? And then if I'm also in this same space that they're going to be gravitating that push or that pull factor is going to be happening, if I'm providing them with the opportunity to sign up for wraparound services to actually begin the idea of housing and jobs and, and, and dealing with their addiction treatment, right, mm -hmm. then I don't know what the numbers are on that. But that's something that I feel like should be within the policy that I think that Something like 2% of them actually like get referrals yeah, yeah. or something really small. Exactly. Right. I'm, but that's my point. But that's but that's feeding to the second thing. So you're right that I did say earlier, and it is recorded. Uh, I'm not denying it. I'm not shying away from it. I did say that one of the ultimate goals is that we want to minimize. This is the oh. harm reduction principle. We want to minimize okay. drug overdoses because there's an ultimate consequence to that, which is that people die. Right? right. But but related to that, inextricably linked to that, the thing that is leading to the death is that is the people are trying to satiate their drug addiction more and more and more. That's the nature of drug addiction. 
And that's what that's one of the things that contributes the most. And so it stands to reason that one of the things that we want that is inextricably linked to the first objective is to minimize the amount of people who are addicted in the first place and or maximize the amount of people who are dealing with the addictions that they already have them in the first place. Right. And so that's that's the major failure of policies like what we're seeing here in San Francisco on the Tenderloin is that they're not maximizing the amount of people who are taking advantage of whatever services are available to them in terms of like rehab and stuff like that. Okay. Okay. This is Golden Gate and Hyde in San Francisco's Tenderloin District. It's a West Coast's largest open air drug market with street gangs dealing heroin, fentanyl and meth in plain sight. The homeless encampments stretch across 50 city blocks and continue to spread. Phil Mateer is a veteran reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. He's watched the neighborhood descend into chaos. This is the Tenderloin, and what they live here is what residents call the tender life. Only it's not very tender. It's anything but tender. It's sleeping on the streets. It's hard drug use. It's mental illness. And you put it all together and you add in something in the last couple of years called fentanyl and you've taken what was a sad mix and made it absolutely toxic and dangerous. How does it work? I think for a lot of people it's shocking. You have open drug dealing. You have clearly kind of street gangs positioned at every corner. You have people shooting up in the middle of the street. How can this happen in a major American city? It's an unintended consequence of a lot of things. First of all, we decriminalized the drugs. We made it so that possession of them is no longer a felony. So we thought that that was going to take people easier off the streets. Instead, what it opened up the floodgates for open use. Mental illness, we don't have places to put the mentally ill. And even if we did, there's a political debate about whether you're going to be violating their civil rights if you do put them in an institution. You put all that together and this is what gets built. It wasn't intended, it wasn't sold to the voters this way, but that's what happened. So then I guess then let's just talk about what does the public world look like then? So you think, and that's what I'm saying, I don't think it's government's, their burden to solve making people um, who are already addicted become not addicted anymore. I don't think you can do that necessarily through policy. I think that the things that, that the things that are required in order for us to make sure that we have a population of people who don't end up to be addicted to drugs, let alone anything the fuck else. Fucking obesity is a problem in our fucking country too. Gambling is a fucking problem in our country too, or whatever. To be addictive in general is to start looking at factors and start putting money and resources towards factors that lead to those things. I think that that's the problem. I feel like now that we already have the symptom of some shit that's crazy, we want to try to put a bandaid and heal it. But it's like, no, it's already done. You have somebody who's already addicted. And so now you have to deal with the consequences that guess what? When you provide these these these, these um services, you're only going to get one to two percent of these people actually making the decision to like, I feel like that just has to be something we take on the chin because there's a whole bunch of factors that have led to this. Every person, even homeless people, they have plenty of stories of a whole bunch of different things that have led them to that point. And I feel like if we really are sincere, we come up with a five, 10, 15, 20 year plan towards actually making this shit uh, move in the right direction. Because guess what? Whoever is fucking homeless right now, fitting all right now, this has been a five, 10, 20, a 15, 20 year implementation of why they're even like that. So that's just kind of where I'm at with it. And I think that that's kind of the problem with our so our societies that we're looking for this instant gratification. 
we think that oh we just have the right policy or if we just if we are more comprehensive with the policy then we'll be able to move the numbers over in x y and z it's like nah bro not with this beast you got people who are addicted anyways we just looked at the chart they're un it's really really hard or it's impossible we don't know which one it is <laughs> for them to choose not to do the goddamn drug so then how can we make the the harm reduction how can we make it so that at least they're not dying as much and they still have the opportunity to be able to make the fucking choice now i'm not saying what, I'm, what I'm what i'm challenging is the so it, it just there is a perspective here that it feels like a cop-out to settle for enabling them to use their drugs or satiate their drug habits safely in order to minimize the likelihood that they overdose um but what you're still doing is 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 in some sense perpetuating their dependence on this drug <laughs> like that 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 part is the cop-out part you, that i think you, a lot of people have break, concerns with break down that that idea of how i would be perpetuating their dependence when, when they're already addicted and that means that they're unable to choose whether or not because about, well, wait sorry you can't wait wait so you you just said that there's nothing about the addiction that prevents them from making the choice to choose rehab right didn't you say that before to choose the services and stuff but if there is something that gets their addiction that keeps them from doing i thought you were trying to say that i'm, I'm keeping them in their addiction to the drug no, you you're enabling them to satiate the addiction that they have already because you're providing right, them. Right, but they could still because make. You're it providing them with methadone as a part yes. of the official policy. Yes, right. and so and, yes, and, I, and I'm in agreement with that. But I will say that I want to make sure I'm being clear. What I'm saying is that I think that an individual who's addicted to a drug can be addicted to the drug, and I understand how the center is not solving their addiction to the drug in a physiological sense, in a cultural sense at all. But what I'm saying is that you could get that satiation and you could still say, hey, I want to do better with my life and I want to sign up for the referrals, right? Mm. Sadly, but sadly in places like the... Okay, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, sadly, in places like the Tenderloin, in the status quo, it's actually worse than what I described. I was just kind of starting us at level one because I wanted to see how you respond. But the, the, the reality is in a lot of these... Um, like homeless tent areas, uh, mm -hmm. these kind of tent cities, mm -hmm. um, the policy positions of the local law enforcement in those areas is that they are very hands off when it comes to they don't they don't arrest, make arrests or prosecute any kind of drug related offenses, even if they're illegal on the books. For many, it is the main source of anger and frustration, the sheer amount of drugs being sold and used across a sprawling open air drug scene that covers much of the Tenderloin and neighboring south of Market. The demand needs to be met by supply, you know? And you're like, what are all those guys doing out there? Well, you know, they're out just, you know, some are doing drugs, some are selling them, some are buying, and it's just constant. And uh, San Francisco is on a way higher level than, you know, anywhere that I'd ever been. You could, if you worked at the Fed building, you could look outside your window and say, I can go downstairs and get anything I want right now. <laughs> and then after 6 o'clock, there's a guy party down out there. The federal building is one notorious corner. Another is right across the street from the federal courthouse. Even if you move them from this corner, they cannot go to another corner. I mean, uh, it's cut and mouse. Black Artie works for a charity called Urban Alchemy. There is a lot of open drug use. I mean, it just happened literally right now, here, right here. Urban Alchemy aims to get drug dealers off the street and helps addicts find a way to drug services. Good morning, good morning. You okay? We about to come through and clean up, okay? Who all want coffee? Let's go. 
How you doing, brother? We immediately came across a street with so many people doing fentanyl, it was hard to get by. Can I ask what you're smoking, sir? Fentanyl. Fentanyl. The local drug dealers had delivered the fentanyl about half an hour before we arrived. Some were openly taking it on the street, seemingly unworried about the police. There you go. There you go. Seeing this firsthand is pretty shocking. He trying to make it up. There you go. You got it, bro? You got it, bro? Fentanyl was developed as a pain medication. Its use as a recreational drug, though, has exploded due to its low cost. It's 100 times stronger than morphine, and even a tiny quantity can kill. Yeah, this is like this every day, every day. And, and you think it's There's evidence of drug use everywhere. There's one that's been used, two, three, these are pulled out a needle. So drug dealers actually know exactly where to go to sell their drugs. They go to where the, the people who are, who are the most addicted are concentrated in these homeless right. areas. And they sell the drugs without any worry of any kind of repercussions. And that's weird if part of what you're trying to do with your policy is to make sure that people are using the safer drugs, which is the versions that you're providing them, the methadone. Because these drug dealers aren't dealing methadone. These drug dealers are dealing fentanyl-laced drugs oftentimes in the tenderloin. So that's that's enabling in the, in the highest, most extreme degree, these people's drug addictions. Yeah. And... The best that we're doing is slapping Band-Aids on it in places like the Tenderloin, and we are creating jobs for people to come and clean up after these people who, you know, leave their trash and things. And, kind of, and I'm not trying to denigrate anybody who's homeless, but this is something that is kind of stereotypically associated with that. They leave trash everywhere. They, they come, they clean up, they power wash the sidewalks and stuff like that, and they do that every day, right? And they clean up the defecation and all of that stuff. But that, but that's not helping anything, even though it's yeah. motivated by compassion and it's trying, it's an attempt to destigmatize these things. It's not no, helping yeah, anything. I agree. I agree. I don't think that letting drug dealers come in with their fit and all, especially in, the, in those particular areas and not doing anything with law enforcement is the answer. I, 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 I don't, I think not just, it's not the answer. It's the wrong thing to do. It enables, it, it's horrible. It, it completely defeats the whole point of what you're trying to do with, the, with another program. I agree with that. Now, but at the same time, I mean, just to be perfectly transparent, if I have a drug dealer, right, who's trying to sell drugs in that particular area, do I think that the right answer is to take him and lock him or her up in prison? No, right? Like, I don't think that's the answer. Um, I, I think that there has to be some type, again, this is a whole system. There needs to be some type of rehabilitation that, like, because ultimately a drug dealer, just like a big pharma, right, is, is looking to make a profit because they're looking to, you know, survive in, in our society. Right. And mm -hmm. so it's like, how are we, how are, how are we taking those individuals? Cause we, they do need to be held accountable for whatever they're doing. So whatever that punitive measure is, is whatever the punitive measure is, but where's the rehabilitation in setting them up so that they can actually, because guess what? If I get caught in um, selling whatever amount of fentanyl or methamphetamine, I'll get a felony and it'd actually be harder for me to get good. A good I, wouldn't become, I wouldn't be able to become a teacher in the community, in that same community that I grew up in, right? So that's what I'm saying. Like, so as much as I, that's what I'm saying, as much as I can agree that that doesn't make sense, but I'm also like, well, the alternative of, of the way in which we traditionally deal with drug dealers and them getting mm -hmm. felonies and them going to prison mm -hmm. is also not conducive to that. It only it also continues the system because now that I have a now that I have a felony, well, guess what I'm going to be able to do then? I'm going to be able to drug deal again. 
You know what I mean? When I get I, out, you're preaching to the choir. I said all of that. Okay, I admit so, it all. So, of so, 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 but so, my, so. I wasn't presenting. I wasn't presenting the incarceral solution as a better alternative. I was simply challenged. I was simply trying to draw your attention to the ways in which the the the, the kinds of policies that you favor in the status quo are also falling way short of what they're yeah. trying to accomplish. And that's, what I, and that's why, for me, I try to be a lot more objective with what I'm favoring. So I don't. I'm not just taking a liberal, soft on crime approach all the way around. Right. I think that the police officers, if I'm a police officer and I see somebody getting ready, especially in the learning, sell drugs, I think that person needs to be stopped and and uh and, and brought in and then they need and like they need to be their their drugs need to be taken away from them. And we need to come up with a program or some type of uh, way in which I can take that person. Go yeah. ahead. So, so, but I'm, I, one of the things I'm trying to do, and I'm, I'm making it explicit now for the first time, is I'm trying to get you to appreciate the kind of conundrum that we are in policy-wise, right? Because these these alternatives are not alternatives because people on both sides are crazy. They're, they're alternatives because of a bunch of practical reasons, which I'm trying to get you to appreciate. So one is, if if you're not going to enforce drug laws that are on the books in the incarceral way, because you think that in many ways that doesn't really help solve the core issue, and I think that there's a lot of validity to that, that's one of the things that undergirds the approach of people like Chesa Boudin, who you know, who, who's very progressive and was and was and and is not prosecuting a lot of these offenses. Yeah. Right? Together today, because of Boudin is a radical, part of a wave of liberal DAs that have been elected in cities across America. He's responsible for which crimes get prosecuted. His detractors say he simply doesn't prosecute enough, and that he's soft on crime. This is an issue we can't prosecute our way out of. The history of the war on drugs tells us that. We need real investments in housing, in treatment on demand, on mental health services, on harm reduction, and doubling down on a failed war on drugs is never going to solve those problems. Yeah, right? I, for the, for the, yeah. right? Like, but, but like, if you're not going to do that, then it's, it's really difficult to come up with a sensible way to hold drug dealers accountable at all. Because, and because, and then also, wait, wait, and then, and also, it's in the last thing I'm gonna say, it's inextricably linked and antithetical to one of the goals of these policies, which is to destigmatize the drug uses in the first place. If you're arresting people who are dealing the drugs, how how are you destigmatizing it? I, I understand, and I think I think that, like I, I had said at the beginning, I'm glad this is recorded. That uh, I don't think that the government, that the government and the way that we were in society, we're at a place to actually deal with this, because there are so many things that would need to change in order for us to actually deal with it in a way that that provides the results that we're actually looking for. So yes, I will acknowledge that this is a very sticky situation because what I'm dealing with the tools that our society is using. If my only way of dealing with a drug dealer is through some type of police incarceration point of view, then yes, that flies in the face of everything you're saying. I acknowledge that that it's fucked up, but it's all we're doing is just showing my point that I don't think we're I don't think that the solvency is going to come from the government because it's not using the right tools to actually deal with it. And and and, and if you want me to directly acknowledge the idea that that uh like for example what you had brought up yesterday which is this idea of like oh well we're not going to prosecute petty theft to a certain to 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 like a certain like level of petty theft or whatever and how that can be um how that can be uh, problematic towards uh, actually solving anything, I 100% agree. And that's why I'm saying, like, I'm not going to sit back and try to, I'm not in love with liberal or conservative enough to to try to defend the fact that 
liberals don't know what the fuck they're talking about sometimes, and they and, and a lot of the policies they can do can definitely enable. Well, okay, if I get interrupt you, just real, I'm I'm not trying to get you to 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 pledge loyalty to either side. I, I I'm genuinely coming from I think a position that you are in, which is I'm not really married to either either, but but the the problem is still a conundrum nonetheless because, like. It's not really clear what the right solutions are. You signaled that some of the solutions are outside of the purview of the status quo, meaning the tools that we would need we don't currently have. But when you yeah, when you started I, describing what those said, look like, go ahead. The first thing I said was that we need to start looking at the root causes of these things and think of a long-term way of, because if I have to use, because you're right, I don't want to be so idealistic and I'm not using any of the things that we have to use. So if I was in San Francisco and I was the mayor, the things that I would be saying I would invest in is I would look at what I'm doing with the with the with the uh, with the uh, harm reduction, and I would say, all right. But what we need to also be doing is that we need to be understanding how trauma, understanding how um, how trauma informs addiction, and how and how our housing market is, and how other all the other factors that that lead to people in five, ten, fifteen years getting to that point, solving those things. Because and that's the only and like I said, and you said it was a cop out, and maybe it is, but I think that you're not gonna ever get you we're not gonna ever through the through the tools that we're using, we're not gonna get to this idea of like we have fifty percent of the people be uh choosing to be uh to, to, to help themselves out and actually not addicted anymore. That's just not well, I, I, I acknowledge the root causes thing. I, I think what I find slightly unsatisfactory about it is it, it there's still gonna come a point at which we need to answer sincerely. And seriously answer the question of what actionable steps can we take so yes we're gonna have to understand some things that we currently don't understand root causes among those right i get that that's actually fairly reasonable as a starting point but eventually we're gonna have to do something actionable in the context of a city like san francisco in the context of a state like california in the context of a nation like the united states we're gonna have to have actionable steps and this might include it likely will include policies that are implemented that implicate our legal system and what we do at the level of law, be it enforcement of the law or um, calibration of the law, changing of the law, uh, reform well, of our, and, and of our criminal case, justice system. My, my answer would be, my answer that I want to stand on, because I don't want to show I'm standing on something not just staying, I would say that I believe in the, I believe in the rehabilitation centers or the centers for, for people to be able to use the, their drugs and be able to have the option to be able to look for services. And I feel like all we can do at this point is continue to put more uh, resources into that and making them more comprehensive. That's the, like, at this point in, 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 in developing rehabilitation centers. I don't think that's too much outside of what we could do policy-wise. We could definitely and, and continue to and continue to um and continue. We could definitely continue to uh, bolster housing. Okay, so those 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 two things are not bad ideas, right? I'm, I'm not. I'm I'm trying to make explicit in ways maybe I haven't been consistently doing. These are not bad ideas, but there's still further practical challenges. So one of them is. Okay, let's say that we uh, launch efforts that are that are that are maybe slowly but surely um, creating or maximizing the availability of already existing uh, uh, rehabilitation centers. But there's a practical necessity that we got to get the people who are addicted to these drugs in there. And if one of our limitations that we're self-imposing, because we value freedom in the libertarian sense so much is that we're not going to make them do it, but we're going to wait for them to decide to do it. 
then then that is hindering our efforts in a fundamental way. And that's one of the reasons why I brought that up is because you you seem to be sticking to this kind of libertarian conception of, of, of freedoms, whereby if people want to choose to do drugs, then that's their choice. And there's something, I guess, dignifying or, or there's some kind of preservation of their humanity in that stance, maybe. But like what's controversial about it is there also seems at the same time to be something inherently dehumanizing about it because we are already aware that these people are under a condition of addiction that is compromising their judgment and therefore their ability to make sound choices with respect to their futures and with respect to their longevity and their own mental and physical health. Erica Sandberg is a writer who's lived in San Francisco for the past 32 years. She's never seen it so bad. It has absolutely exploded. Um, and. There are more. There are more drugs on the street. There's more act, drug activity in terms of sales. Um, the, the tents have completely taken over sidewalks. I've seen a lot of people having sex in public. It didn't necessarily look consensual. I saw a man eat his own vomit out of just complete mental illness. This was something that I saw, and I'm thinking, how is this possible that we would just allow somebody in such a state to live on the street because it's his freedom? It's a complete breakdown, a complete breakdown. It's horrific. So like if we understand that people are sick in a very specific way that undermines their ability to make sound judgments, then wouldn't that be a justification for stepping in in that case? We wouldn't expect a mentally ill person to make sound judgments, would we? No, we wouldn't expect a mentally ill person to, uh, that's the whole point of, um, that's the whole legal definition of mentally ill is that you can't hold them accountable for whatever they're, you can't hold them accountable in the same way. For but like, but doing. wouldn't that be an, uh, an an argument for like the kinds of things they used to do, which they used to commit people who were considered mentally ill and that, that entailed a kind of coerciveness whereby they were forced to seek treatment. Um, you, your, your stance is antithetical to that because yeah. fundamentally Ooh. what you, what you don't want is the dehumanization associated with forcing a person who's addicted to drugs into uh, some kind of rehabilitation center against their will. Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't think that we can force them, but I think that we can continue to keep certain um, avenues open. So, for example, if because if, you got to think about all the spillover. So if I'm a drug addict and I'm doing the drug or whatever. Right. And then I end up in the legal legal uh, system because I stole something or because I'm doing something or whatever. Right. Then what I'm saying is that within the legal system, there needs to still be avenues for me to be able to go into and get rehabilitation. So one so one way to do that it would be like here's here's a here's a sentence that you face for your illegal activity but you'll get way less time if you choose to undergo rehab. Yeah. That's one way to do it, right? Yeah. There's still a coercive aspect to it. And I don't yeah. know how dehumanizing you think that is, but to me no, that would be a lot better because that would be more successful in maximizing the amount of people who are, who are in the situation actually yeah. getting the help that they need. Or yeah. instead of giving them methadone on the street in places like the Tenderloin in these tented areas, right? You say a condition for you to receive this thing <laughs> is you need to check in the rehab. <laughs> Your first one's free. But after that, you need to check or something. I don't know, the most effective way to do it. But like, there's got to be some kind of push that's built into the policy whereby it's not just like, here's free methadone as long as you want, but like also rehab. No? Okay, here's your methadone. Like, I don't know how successful that's going to be in getting people the help they need. 
Well, again, I, I, I don't, I can't be play expert on addiction and how that works. Um, if again, because I'd be open to like what you just explained, like, okay, like that sounds reasonable. And I'd love to see what happens, right? And all I'm saying is that I don't think that even if that was something that worked or didn't work, I don't think that the point of any of this is to think that just because we do that one thing, that that's what's going to bring, because what if it doesn't work, right? All I'm saying is that these need to keep, keep those doors open, is what I'm saying, ultimately. I'm not married to the idea that that they necessarily, uh, that, that the, their freedoms are going to be completely done if there's some type of coercion. But I am open with the idea of understanding that, hey, at the end of the day, we deserve to give them methadone because otherwise it could just be uh, overdosing on the street. You know what I mean? So like I'd, I'd be, if it was, I was the mayor's office and I was the mayor, I'd perfectly take your idea and say, hey, what do we think about this? But I'd put it within a one, five, 10, 15 year plan because what's going to happen is if your numbers don't come out exactly how they wanted to be with growing, then people are just going to vote you out or people or conservatives are going to say, see, this shit still doesn't fucking work, right? When that's not the point, you know what I mean? And I don't think we're going to actually ever solve the what's happening right now with the people right now. I don't think we're gonna actually going to solve those things. I think what we have to do is keep the door open and, and, and go towards the long term of it. I think that's just, we have people that are already sick. And well, but, but I understand what you're saying about uh, how fickle uh, uh, political factions can be in terms of their willingness to get rid of whoever's in office or whoever implemented a policy that doesn't work as immediately as they want. Right. I, like there's there's a fair critique there. And I'm, I'm not going to make it seem like that's a trivial point that you just made. However, on the other hand, I also think that it does make sense to have a system of accountability that involves the voters to vote people out of office who are not doing a good job because they are ultimately accountable to their constituents. And if they're implementing policies that aren't working under a reasonable amount of time, then it, it is fair to take yeah. those steps to get them out or get them removed. I just think that we live in a culture in which what a reasonable amount of time is, because like to your point, like that you've been bringing up, like people, there are going to be practical things and things happening and robberies and things happening right now. But I don't think that we're willing to understand the ways in which things have come to roost within our culture and the way that we've set this situation up to happen. And That's fair. I, I agree with that. That's fair. Our, we're, our populace is very bad at judging fairly and reasonably with respect to which politicians are doing good jobs and which politicians aren't because we have we have a kind of tr culture of tribalism inculcated in our politics that is antithetical to that um one side of the political spectrum pounces every time there's something that optically looks bad for a member of their rival political party um and and this yeah, is this it, is something it, that's getting it worse it, hard, it makes it hard to actually be able to work on something with the type of uh continuity that that will take right. a, that it's going to take long term a long term effort. Um, That's true. And, and but think, but at the same, I also think the thing that we haven't been talking about a little bit more is that I also think that this is a, this is a, a class issue. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's not just that I have the attitude that oh well it's my political advantage as soon as I see that your numbers aren't right I'm going to say oh see this person's horrible and then try to move move you know move them out or whatever I think it's also there's a particular attitude we have in the in the class sense that when poor people need resources and they need time, we don't have as much time and resources. But I keep bringing this shit up. But Israel has been in fucking war and having conflict since it was fucking incepted. And we've been helping and supporting and giving the amount of money and military resources and actual capital for as long as they fucking need it. And, and things are actually... A lot, I mean, I don't want to say a lot better, but like there's Ukraine, 
Ukraine yeah. is more recent. Well, well that, that's a separate thing. I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying Israel because Israel's a. Look at the numbers of how much money we give Israel. No, I'm aware. I, I was saying I was choosing Ukraine not to negate your Israel example. It's a perfectly no, good example. I'm saying Ukraine is a more recent example. No, for sure. But but my, my point though is that when we as a society feel like we want to move towards helping something because we believe in it, there's a lot more time and patience. And actually, the idea of whether or not we have enough money is not even the question. Nobody, when we give a billion dollars to Israel in the midst of a recession or whatever, asks, oh, do we have it? They say, no, well, these people deserve to be able to have the sovereignty over their land in X, Y, and Z. It's not about whether or not I agree with it. It's the idea that this is an example of showing what it's like when when we are dealing with a certain population. And when I'm- so I, I mean, you're preaching to the choir. The, the, the ways okay, so, with which so, so, we so, so, so prioritize idea, foreign nations over our, so, so, over our own let citizens. Back, let, me bring it, let me bring it back to the Tinder moment, right? I bring it back to the Tinder moment to say, outside of racial things, definitely, if there's ever a milking pot, right? But like, there's also a class thing. We have less patience, and we have less, and, and we, we have less patience with people who are poor. Well, okay, but I got to complicate the ultimate point you're making. I agree with, but I, you got to deal with some some non-trivial nuances. One is that the things that you're comparing you're comparing do not have the same funding mechanisms, and you can't. That's not a trivial thing. So, the funding mechanisms for funding. Uh, ridiculously hot, like billions of dollars of like, and and also like military equipment and stuff to Israel are not quite the same funding mechanisms as the funding that goes into uh, stuff at the city level, like the city of San Francisco. They're fundamentally different, right? So we we got to take that into account. Okay. Although, but ultimately, I don't think it's going to undermine the ultimate point you're making. But you need to account for it because it's not a trivial difference. I mean, practically speaking, with how you actually run a government, you're a hundred percent right. Um, like. A hundred percent, right? And there's going to be definitely different complications, but I think that it's still, and like I said, it, it points to a lot of the ways in which the mechanisms by which we've been using these tools to actually administer government and talk about politics needs to change. But yes, you're right. That is a hundred percent a different a different factor. The ways in which I would want a federal government to fund a state to then be able to give those resources to a county or a city. Or the, or the ways in which I will I would be getting that money uh, directly or indirectly from the taxpayer um on a county versus state versus national level so like it's completely different so the money we give to israel has to do with the federal so everybody's paying that out of the whole country versus and it's all you know and it's within an already inflated budget within the military budget mm-hmm. versus the ways in which uh schools are funded through direct property tax and so people are a lot more like no that's my actual money being to xyz so i get that but, but I guess, you know, to my bigger point is that, no, like, yeah, the federal government should be doing that top down because we find this to be a national issue in which poor people are actually a priority and an immediate emergency priority. That's going to that's going to have the similar type of long term uh, investment that you see in that we have with Israel or and I'm just using Israel because for me, it's just very stark and easy to see. But with any other thing that we, we, we fund on a long term. Uh, basis and we find to be important. Um, I think that I only brought that up because I do think that it's it's an important um, distinction because I think that another aspect of when you dehumanize or we talk about poor people, we also make them the problem instead of looking. And that's and, go ahead. No, I was I was I was just clearing my throat. I, I want you to. Okay, yeah. So I think I feel like a part of the problem with the pros of how we're even approaching this is that or not we are approaching this, but the ways that um, lawmakers are approaching this is we're looking at 
the addict or the uh, person as the problem and not under, not and not trying to say, oh, well, that's a failure in these other systems that we have. And so therefore we need to bolster or, re, re, or reform these other systems we have. And so and I feel like that's problematic on a policy and, and that's kind of what we're running into because I don't think that, and this is me in theory in general, right? That I don't think that policy can change a, a person's like choices per se. I think it can influence, but I don't think it's going to actually change the actual person. I think that if you're going to change the actual person, you get smart people who research things and say, these are the things that actually influence the person. And then you actually change those systems. And that can influence. But, but that's, policy that's directly. Uh, policy directly is not going to make a person stop choosing the drug or, or never choose the drug to begin with. I, I think you're. I think you're partially right, but I think you're underestimating the value of this kind of thing. So like like the, the primary mechanisms that we have by which to influence behavior at, at that at such at that's at, at such a scale as as our entire society is we can we can either do so coercively or by creating all kinds of incentives. The coercion is more the punitive and the incentives are more kind of the carrot as opposed to the stick. Um and so there is all kinds of room in there for a person's uh, inner being or whatever to not in some genuine sense be transformed. They may just be reacting in a kind of transactional way um, to the carrot of the stick. But like, but like, it's still extremely valuable as a mechanism to be able to direct human action in ways that actually are beneficial in our, in our entire society. No, for right? sure. So that's, that's what I'm saying. We're talking about, if we go back on subject, I think that it's important for us to be able to minimize the amount of overdoses. And I think it's important for us to continue to keep the door open through, and I can acknowledge a little bit of co coercion in the way that we can for people to have the eye, be able to have the, the open, non-stigma driven option to be able to seek um, care for themselves. I think that that can that can definitely be a thing, and so really, I don't really have any else to uh, really talk about it. I like the idea, or it's your idea, but it's also my idea. I like the idea of like part of the spillovers and and what makes them what, what makes homelessness and addiction a problem for our society, which is objective around crime and poverty, is that they're going to end up in the legal system, and if they can end up in the legal system, and we have and we offer options for for um for treatment and in, 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 in lieu of of punitive punishment. I think that that would coerce people to be more a part of their treatment. And then I think that we should be able to fund that treatment in a way that makes it so comprehensive. We have experts and we, and we also pay the workers that are doing this, this hero work a lot more, right? All that kind of stuff. So that there's also incentive for people to continue to see it as a career path. You know what I mean? Those are the type of things we can do. And I don't, and I don't know. And I think that that's really cool. But then at the same time for the most practical aspect of it, I'm still open to the idea of having these centers in which the methadone in which people can come in. And I like that idea. I, I will say that if, if right now the current policy is that you could just call, go in and use the methadone and there's no type of like, hey, but I need you to sign up or whatever. If there's like a three, three, three times you can use it and then you need to at least sign up and see and go to at least one class before you can get your next one. But like, I'm all for all that. I'm for all of that. But I'm also for monitoring that over time and not considering it to be a complete failure if it doesn't bring out the numbers that we're doing. You know what I mean? And I think that yeah. that's the aspect of it that is kind of uh, gets lost in the sauce because we keep on trying to reinvent the wheel every time because we, oh, the numbers didn't move up on, on, on a particular issue. Like whatever Mayor uh, London Breen's doing right now, she's only bringing in 2%, 1% to 2% of the people actually doing referrals. Okay, last, oh, last controversial devil's advocate question. What okay. about penalizing the shit out of the suppliers of fentanyl 
the suppliers of fentanyl. Oh, you mean the drug dealers or China? All of the above. All of the channels of distribution that we can easily identify That's that are illegal. That's why not? Why not? Why not severely penalize? Because if you cut off the source of the fentanyl, then in, in presumably, in theory, well, that's, that's you'll stop easy. people from being able to use it to cut it with other things, and then and then isn't that a form of harm reduction? Why? Why are you against a policy like that? No. If you are, uh, yeah, I would be. A, it's the same reason why I'd be against prohibition. Like you, you, you can never really regulate the black market like that, and all you're going to do is create higher uh, not higher demand, but like you're going to be able to create higher prices for for getting the same shit. You're not going to be able to do that. That's just not. A, that's not a thing. You, you don't think that we have the ability to stop drug cartels at all? No, and I don't think that we actually want to. Interesting. Why? Why would we not want to? Um, I think that the way that the medical industry is set up, the way that um, our borders are set up, the way that power dynamics are set up. I think that there are people who are uh, winning and, and, and profit from the continual uh, the, the the drug cartels and bringing in illicit drugs into this country. Like like how? Like can you give me one example? Um, let's see. Um, I can steal menu if you're talking about our carceral system and and private prisons. They benefit. No, but no, like I, drug. I that, so like. Um, well, let's take it. Let's take. I mean, what drug do we want to talk about? We could talk about, um, we could talk about opioids, or I don't care what drug you talk about, but opioids has been the subject of the conversation. All right, so, so if we're looking at fentanyl and um, and, and opioids, I would say that this whole like system of keeping certain people distracted and preoccupied with like surviving benefits people who, who can take advantage of that. So like like corporate like corporations like who can you name um, the system? I think the system like so um, prison the prison system. Yeah, that one is I think easy to steal, man. But I can't think of any other aspect of our society that would benefit in this way, unless you mean something more general like corporations who exploit cheap labor or something. Uh, no, no, I. Um... No, I just mean the idea of keeping the society kind of like how it is. Like, like if I'm already, if I am a, um, if I am a, how do I say, like, if I'm like a corporate, like a CEO, if I'm a, I'm a person who's in charge of any type of industry, or not just in charge of an industry, but I have business within a, a, a huge industry, I don't want the people of the general populace to be like, well, you know what? We want more resources for everything within our community. We want we want to equalize the distribution of uh, resources within our community, within the society in general. If I want things to continue to be able to say, like me as a one person, I have ninety percent of the fucking resources or whatever, then obviously I'm going to want to continue to have pe these people to be uneducated, to be these people in in uh, in in um, toxic environments, environmentally toxic environments, and, and these people are going to be uh, drugged up. So I think that the powers that be that actually make the decisions around actually stopping the cartel and stuff like that, they're in, they're, they're they don't they're not interested in in a whole bunch of change. And that's my conspiracy. You mean something like COINTELPRO, like 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 there was political incentive to in to infuse well, yeah, black that, communities. I mean, that, I mean the powers that think through a COINTELPRO to begin with, like outside of actual 
geographic. So, so there's a lot of different ways. There's international, there's international um, interest also, right? So there's also like, hey, I want to keep uh, the Congo in a state of warfare so that I can continue to extract certain shit from them and continue their drug trades and all those different things going so that they never ever come together so that I can continue to export resources or no, excuse me, import resources from them. But um, I just think that in general, the people who are in charge, they don't want to see the, the general population be able to actually come to a consciousness of like, hey, we deserve more. We deserve better. And so at any given opportunity, stuff like real revolutions or like real grassroots efforts that are looking to like, 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 what is it called? The sitting on Wall Street? Was it? It was called something Occupy, like, Occupy Wall Street. Uh, the black, the original Black Panther movement, the original farmers movement with uh, the farm workers movement with the Delano March and uh, yeah, Hugo, uh, um, Cesar um, Chavez and uh, Dolores. Chavez. Yeah, um, I think that those are the things that are that will continue to be stomped out aggressively, and and also abroad will be stomped out aggressively because the people who are in charge don't want to see that type of real change. So I think if if you're looking at gun trafficking, if you're looking at drug trafficking, those things will continue to be a quote unquote issue because they're not actually being, people are not have a real, a real uh, stake in, in changing them. I mean, <laughs> ironically, maybe, maybe one example of that is that there does seem to be some kind of political incentive by uh, the current administration and Democrats generally uh, to allow uh, borders to be, uh, in, not secure and and have people coming willy-nilly into the country that would be at least the contention of at least a lot of republicans that i've talked to recently um is that an example and i'm I mean, sure you can find another example no, by I mean, republicans yeah, I mean, but, sure that could be an example but i just mean the way that for me the way that republicans and democrats operate for them to be able to continue to be um legitimate is that there has to be a problem and people have to be able to disagree on the problem and then then they can go ahead and pick their game, because that's all they are is a game, to say this, this is the game that's going to go ahead and solve my problem. And then, so therefore, if I'm the problem solver, just like Al Sharpton. But, why, but why, are you, why are you assuming they're manufacturing these crises just because they can benefit politically in some sense no, from solving them? No, I didn't say they're it. manufacturing them. I said that they're not solving them. You asked me originally about, the, about drug trafficking, whether or not they are actually involved in like wanting to actually okay them. fair enough maybe let me rephrase let me rephrase my question why do you think that they are deliberately not trying to solve once and for all these problems because if, these you, because if you solve if you actually solve these problems um well there's one you wouldn't need that person anymore it's just like teach for america you wouldn't need that organization anymore if you actually solved fucking the teaching the, the education system within no i agree but that doesn't necessarily mean that Pilot that well maybe some of them are I, I'm not woefully dense about this but that doesn't necessarily mean that any politician that presents themselves as in some sense the person for the job for solving certain crises is has some kind of in, they're operating under some kind of in perverse incentive to maintain the crisis so that they can stay in power right like I think it's possible and it's plausible but I don't think that that happens all the time I actually think you'd be surprised how many politicians genuinely want to solve problems <laughs> even though they're sometimes even bad at it. Nah, I, I, from my close encounters in DC and actually doing fellowship with Next Line Z, I think politicians are more in, in, in more invested in maintaining their reign in getting reelected 
in 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 not necessarily to their content constituents, but to whoever's lobbying to them than they are in anything else. Do you think that we have a shortness in supply of crises? Because, <laughs> like, it seems like there's plenty of problems to go around. <laughs> I don't think that no, politicians are that concerned about running out of problems. All I'm saying is that these things can be solved. Poverty, <sighs> for example, or for, for example, people just being hungry and homeless can be solved. But why is it never actually solved? I, I agree that a lot of these things can be solved in principle, and but I, I don't what I'm not willing to do is leap to the conclusion that the reason why they're not being solved is because people have a perverse incentive to not solve them. I think it's actually more likely that a lot of these things are just really fucking complicated and or certain structures in our systems that are outside of the purview of particular people in power, right, are antithetical to solving them, right, as opposed to right. the people in power themselves well, not wanting it's to. Also, it's also, so, so, for example, if I want to solve housing, but the lobby, the real estate lobby, or the people who are owning a lot of, or the banking lobby says, no, we don't want this particular policy that could be good for, for a lot of people to actually go through that whatever they want, because they have more money is going to, it's going to be the thing that the politician does and votes on. Uh, uh, yeah. So, but. <laughs> and right. so what I'm saying is but that corporations, that's... corporations don't, and that's part of the problem with capitalism is that corporations don't have the interest of the many at hand. They have their profits at hand. And I do think that I don't believe that capitalism in general can be is forever evil. I think that you could match profits with the interest of the people who who are going to be impacted. I think you could do that, but that's not usually the case. So, for example, environmental issues in general. Why? Why would we? It, 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 regardless of how much you say the impact is of of environmental factors, why in general would we want to be cutting down uh, 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 trees at an alarming rate in the Amazon or whatever? Right. It's because corporations say, eh, I'd rather I'd rather have my profit in this situation over the over the environmental issue. And because they have the money to be able to do it, they can go ahead and get these things done. And, that, and that's what I'm saying. So I don't think that it's far fetched to, to say that a lot of the issues that could be solved are not solved because the, because to the last part of you said the people who actually have the resources to be able to influence politicians. Don't actually—they want what's best for them, and that's not always what's best for everybody. Well, but, but just to, to clarify, that's different from what I was addressing before. What you seem to be saying before, and I actually agree with the thing you just said. That that is way more understandable for me, generally as a as a as an explan as an explanation for why problems don't get solved. Um, is that certain structural elements, including but not limited to the ways in which corporations operate in a capitalist society such as ours, are antithetical to those things? That makes sense more so than politicians have a, 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 an investment in preserving crises so that they feel needed and therefore can get people to want to vote for them by presenting themselves as the only way to solve a problem. I don't think that that's a good explanation for the vast majority of cases and the vast majority think, of problems. I, I think that I don't think that it's a, a, as an, an, an example. I think you're right. I, did, I think that it's just a factor that I was bringing into. I think that if I look if I look back at how politicians, outside of an actual individual, but just how politicians work, they need a, they need that they need because we're in a representative uh, democracy. So it's one of those things where I don't feel like there's a direct. I'm just acknowledging that there's not a direct um, serving of the constituents. I think that there's other factors that keep it so that outside of the lobbying, but there's other factors that keep it so that you you kind of just maintain the uh, like you you embellish the idea that you know what. I know that when this particular issue or crisis comes up, the Republicans are going to say this, and that I get my opportunity to say this, and that, and I think that I'm the voice of the constituents. When in, in reality, you're, you're just being a part of the quote-unquote problem and solution. Okay. Um, 
Well, we're, I'm going to uh, start transitioning this towards wrapping up, but I want to. Yeah, yeah, we're already at the two hour mark and I have to go. Right. But I but I want to I want to kind of put a nice bow on it. So I want to uh, yeah. uh, end with this kind of closing question. Um, what do you think is the biggest thing that we can do to help solve uh, this particular crisis with the opioid uh, epidemic? I think that we should um, put together a 20 year uh, plan that is informed by the people who are impacted by a drug addiction around what uh, a recovery culture and recovery society looks like. And I think we should begin the process of uh, funding and putting in policies that adhere to this type of end goal culture that we want to change around our culture, around um, just uh, the, the causes of addiction. That's what I feel like we should we should be able to do. In the immediate, I think that we need to um, bolster our rehabilitation uh, programs and uh, continue to meet people who have uh, who struggle with addiction where they are. Do you think that policies like that uh, have a chance to get voted in? Because ultimately, I think they would have to be. Uh, no, I don't. Wasn't that kind of a, a huge hurdle? <laughs> no, see, just because no, I mean that's just what it is. Like I, I, even though I think I know what the answer is, I don't think that the people who would need to vote things in, like for example, I believe that we need to have in California more affordable housing. That's what I believe. I mean, that should be voted in. But do I believe the people in Palo Alto are going to vote to have complexes, duplexes put in their in their neighborhoods, uh, which would then allow people to be able to more people to be in their neighborhoods and take away their their gated fences and, and X Y Z? No, I don't. Because of not because I believe it, because historically it shows that the people in Palo Alto are not going to vote for that actual proposal when it comes to their actual city ordinance. So just because I think that that's what we should do doesn't mean that I believe that I know that that's what's going to happen. Okay, fair enough. Um, well, I want to thank you sincerely for doing this podcast episode. Uh, it's been great chopping it up. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation as far as I'm concerned. I don't think we got into the the back and forth until towards the end because I was I was concentrating more on making sure I was as informative as possible. But I do think we got a we got yeah, but I, I do think we got a lot of bang out of our buck in terms of going back and forth and me doing kind of my devil's advocate thing. Um, and yeah, uh, and I feel like I feel like also I just want to say thank you so much, but I also feel like I want to come back and I want to be able to do another topic. Yeah, and I think we have plans in the works uh, to do the the topic we were gonna do today, uh, okay. another day. So I'll get you in. Uh, we'll we'll talk off uh, back channel to schedule. But I want to give you one last chance uh, to say adios to my audience and promote anything you want to promote uh, hey, because that's hey. one of the things you get for being a guest on my show. Hey, definitely appreciate it. I just want to thank everybody for listening through. I know it's been a long conversation. I don't know how he's gonna edit it, but hopefully y'all heard something that at the end of the day just gave made you more informed. Um, but I do want to go ahead and take some time to uh, shout out Create the Space. It's a Black men's mental health group um, out here in the Bay Area, and uh, we actually have an event today called Between the Lines, in which we're going to be talking about Black parenting and just kind of doing a social experiment, and just giving the space for Black men and Black women to come together and begin to uh, close the gap between like our communication, really, just so that we can continue to like be there for each other. And uh, yeah, so if you have time, go ahead and look up Create the Space. That is createthespace.com. And just kind of see if you want to get involved um, around uh, Black men's mental health. How do you spell that? Because I'm going to show it on the Chiron. Uh, so for Create the Space, it's C R. Uh, 
Let me fix my face. There's a CRE and then the number eight. Yeah, it's CR and then the number eight, and then it's thespace.com. Bet. Yeah. All right, let me go ahead and. And if you ever want to email me or just contact me about anything to do with Black men mental health, we do we do yoga, uh, we do book club, uh, we do we have programming that we do at schools um, that is around giving Black men or Black boys their voice, but really just students of color their voice put on programming. Um, all throughout the Bay Area. We also have potlucks every month. So if you ever just want to be around a whole bunch of uh, black folks and just have fellowship, uh, you can email me at Malik, M A L I K, at createthespace.com. Spell the same way C R 8 S P A C E.com. I'm typing this in. So your email is Malik at createthespace.com? Yep. All right. And there we go. Malik at create the space.com. This, this is the first time I'm using these features. So like, hey, I don't know if you can see it, but hey, enjoy it, man. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Um, All right, man. Um, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if there's a potluck, right? In a few hours. Oh, uh, no, there's actually my, it's my event. It's the between the lines. That's actually going to be at three o'clock today. Yeah. In a few hours. I need to actually go to start setting up. Uh, we'll have uh -huh. a, we're having a potluck on the 23rd this, of this month. I'm gonna try to show up to the next potluck um because I, I should be more caught up on my stuff by then. But uh again, thank you. Uh this is my friend Malik Brown. Um and we will be bringing him back uh not too not too long from now. Uh hit him up on his email. There's also create the space.com. I'm gonna show that one more time so that we know how to spell it. Uh and create the space is a is a is a group of brothers that's doing some interesting things that I think uh, more people should know about um out out in, uh in oakland in the bay area so shout out to y'all and then uh I'll, I'll talk to you offline stay offline and i'm gonna go ahead and wrap this up real quick all right ladies and gentlemen that has been the black news podcast um you can reach uh the black news podcast on all the social medias using my link tree i'm on instagram i'm on tiktok i'm on facebook i'm on everything um and um, you can, I also have like my, my own individual one is uh, at Black Muse, um, usually black underscore muse, black spelled the normal way, muse spelled with a Z, M-U-Z-E. Uh, but this has been the Black Muse podcast, man. We try to do uh, episodes like this, deep dive, talking about interesting and uh, pressing issues at least once a week. Um, this has been a long one. Can't wait to uh, release it to y'all. But until next time, peace.